It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. It's Saturday, and that means it's another edition of the Weekend Watchdogs. Mike Silva and in for the vacationing Joe Bono is it once again Jim Mojo Morrison. You can listen to the show live or replay at weekendwatchdog.com. Send us a tweet throughout the show, after the show, at Mike Silva Media, at Jim Mojo Morrison on Twitter, and go to the Weekend Watchdogs Facebook page, as well as check us out on iTunes. You can get us any point throughout the week, 365 days a year, 24-7. And uh, you can get it in your iPhone, whatever, you know, little iPad, whatever you uh, choose to listen to the show. And uh, joining me, uh, and it's a little bit of a different remote location. Uh, yes, he's down in Charlotte. Yes. We are doing the show together, but he is live from BB&T Ballpark down in Charlotte. Uh, Mojo's working the uh, Charlotte Knights game later, but he's been kind enough to spend the next two hours here talking New York sports with me and the Weekend Watchdogs. Uh, Mojo, we're going to play Where's Mojo throughout the show. I know now you're in one portion of the park. You may have to go to another portion at some point. So if anybody hears some batting practice banter or balls flying off the bat or maybe some uh, pregame music, you know where that's coming from. Uh, where are you now located? Are you in a secret bunker in... Uh, I, I am sitting on... Actually, Mike, I am adjacent to the press box, but I'm in the owner's suite. Uh, the the press box area in this brand-new, beautiful ballpark voted the number one facility in minor league baseball uh, two years straight, leading minor league baseball in attendance, uh, just about 600,000 uh, for the year with about nine dates to go, uh, 30 sellouts or 32 sellouts total uh, for the season uh, in about 50 dates. So they, they draw very well here, this beautiful facility, very impressive. And so they've got me here now for at least the first hour. It's very hard to do stuff in the actual press box where people are working, uh, you know, to get ready for broadcast and stuff. So they're trying to accommodate us and the weekend watchdogs. Uh, my good buddy, Tommy Viola, the director of media operations here in Charlotte, a Brooklyn boy. Uh, no relations to Frank, but a diehard Mets fan. Uh, he has gone the extra mile to make sure that I am ready and available uh, for you in the show of this morning. And we have, uh, in a little bit later this hour, Bob Clappish of the record. Uh, he's been on the show. It's been a while. will join us. He'll be at Yankee Stadium. The Yankees retiring this week in both Andy Pettit and Jorge Posada's numbers. Uh, obviously, the theme here is the stretch drive, because now that you, you had a week where the Mets had a couple of days off, and you're really starting to see September right in front of you. I mean, you're about oh, a little over a week till September 1st, uh, the meaningful quote-unquote games in September. This is the stretch drive. You know, Mets with a nice win last night. I know the Yankees uh, have had a couple of tough losses this week uh, uh, to the Indians, but, you know, two first-place baseball teams, a lot to talk about, so Bob Clappish will get into that. The Jets played a preseason game yesterday. Some good, not some, a lot not so good, but some good. Uh, Giants play a preseason game this weekend, so we'll get into the training camps. And, uh, you know, that will be a theme more for the second hour. Mojo, you had a chance to have a little bit of an experience as a, you know, a member of the media and get a chance to uh, see both the Saints and the Patriots practice, uh, sit in on a couple of meetings, get to meet some people. I know you have some things to share, but I think it's fair to say with that, uh, before we get into the baseball it really gave you a different perspective on the NFL and uh, getting a rare look behind the curtain. 
You know, Mike, Randy Moss lives here in Charlotte, and I had the opportunity to go up uh, to Greenbrier uh, in West Virginia, where this beautiful uh, resort facility was built by billionaire uh, Jim uh, Justice, and he has hooked up with the Saints. The Pelicans are going to be going up there as well for their training camp, and they are doing the joint practice thing now because of the new collective bargaining. They don't have time to get a lot of the work in, so to consolidate the time, they're basically bringing another team in to practice against to try to get the reps in because you're beating up on yourselves. You're not really seeing any type of progress, so teams are doing that. Uh, The Giants have done that with the Bengals, uh, the the Dolphins who are here in Charlotte to play the Panthers later on tonight. That's why we're playing at noon here at BB&T Ballpark. They're uh, doing joint practice this week. So the Saints and Patriots did it, and Randy Moss was invited uh, to go and be a guest of Bill Belichick and the Patriots uh, prior to the practice, and I was you know, invited to tag along and uh, had the opportunity to do so and got to go in and sit in on the Patriot team meetings and meet Bill Belichick and some other uh, you know, Patriot people, and uh, it was an experience I've never uh, thought that I would get to actually sit in on an NFL team meeting, watch the way they diagram and they do things and prepare, and then go stand. I mean, I've sat on the sidelines to watch jet practices for five years and watch Rex and the way they do business. Never got a chance to sit in on meetings, but uh, it was a very uh, unique experience, uh, and spending the time with Randy Moss and uh, getting to know him and then getting to meet Bill Belichick and a bunch of the people, it was very, very good uh, experience, one I'll never forget, and it gives you a lot of uh, new perspective on uh, how certain organizations uh, do business. I also met Sean Payton and got some uh, Saints time in as well. And uh, it's, it's very different to watch other teams and the way they operate compared to what you're used to watching the Jets and Giants, particularly the Jets, uh, where I spent five years, you know, covering the team out in Florham Park. Well, let's get to the baseball mojo. Uh, you know, Mets win. We'll start there. Mets win 14-9 to last night. They had a week where they rebounded a little bit from the disaster last week in Pittsburgh. And I said this when the, the Nats were on the road trip and the Mets were at home, the Mets really needed to take this opportunity to open up the division lead because you you feel that the Nats are going to have one last push. That was a theme. Every radio talk show, and I listened to some of the the MLB network on series, everybody's waiting, when the Nats going to make their push? And and this is impossible. It's five games. You know, the reality, what I said about the Nationals, that they messed around with the division, they've played sloppy, they've played lazy uh, at times. They've had injuries, there's no doubt but they haven't really taken the division seriously, has come into play. Now, if you remember a couple of years ago, Mojo, it was 2013 when the Braves won the division. The Nationals did something very similar that year. They weren't, but they were out of the playoffs. They weren't even in the, really the wild card mix, and they made this huge run late, maybe the last two weeks of September, and they missed the wild card. They missed the playoffs, and everybody said, oh, well, if, you know, if the Nationals only made the playoffs, they were the hottest team in baseball. But you know what? That was the last two weeks of the season. You had the rest of, uh, of, of the year that they did not play well. And you have to think, if Denard Span comes back and if Jason Worth can finally find his, uh, his, his offense, the bullpen's been leaky, but there's, uh, you know, Storin and, and Papelbon at the end is a really good 8-9. They have, uh, they have Thornton in there. They just brought up Turner, the shortstop, to, as like their rookie, their Conforto, maybe to give them a little jump start. You have to think at some point, now it didn't happen last night, that they're going to make their move. So it would behoove the Mets to get this to right now. It's five, six, seven. 
you know, despite the fact that the Mets are five games up, and I understand what you saw last night was vintage Coors Field. The things that concern me, Mojo, are this. If this gets down to where the Mets have to win late in the year, that last week, two out of three from the Nats, I worry about that because the Nats have the experience, they have the bullpen, and they can, with their starting pitching, match some of the Mets' starters. I know the Grom's having this Pedro Martinez type year, but Max Scherzer is every bit the pitcher that any of the Mets pitchers are. So you have to worry about that. The Mets' bullpen is certainly a concern, and even Tyler Clippert, He's not missing a lot of bats, Mojo. He's only striking out four per nine innings. He's pitched well, but you have to worry a little bit that that's not going to translate as you go through the process. Terry Collins still, you look at him last night, he seems to struggle with the feel of the game, managing the bullpen. Um, The defense is awful, Mojo. You saw that again yesterday against the, the Rockies. And I think even offensively, although they're improved, they're becoming much more reliant on the home run. So, um... You know, with all now, who would have, things, who would have thought that about a month ago? <laughs> right. With all those things, when you look at the process, you've got to feel good about the Mets. But if the Nats continue to struggle, even against teams like Milwaukee, they're playing at home, you've got to take the next couple of games or at least one of the next two games. You really have to win these Philadelphia-Colorado games because even though you have six games with the Nats, you just don't know. You don't know how things are going to turn out here. And... Um, I really still have concerns about the Mets from when you really peel the onion. This is exciting. Yes, you're going to have meaningful games here in September. No doubt about that. But this idea, and now they're shutting down Matt Harvey, and Syndergaard's going to get shut down. To behave as if this thing is just going to be a a smooth uh, transition into postseason baseball, I don't, you know, five games could go away. Like that, in a snap of a finger. We've seen it. I hate to bring up 07, but it could go away pretty quick. I agree, Mike, as far as they need to kind of take advantage of this opportunity that they have playing some of these, you know, bottom division teams. Because, you know, when you flip the, the month and we get into September, how many times do you see teams that are out of it all of a sudden bring an influx of some AAA guys who are looking to make an impression and they have nothing to lose and no pressure and they stick it to a contender. Look at Florida did to the Mets in 07 and 08. I mean, they were a bottom of the barrel team, now the Miami Marlins, and they just stuck it to the Mets those last couple of weeks of the season. And, you know, Mets had those must-win games that final weekend, that final day, and, and they couldn't beat them uh, when, when it counted. And that's something that you can't guarantee yourself. This isn't you know, an automatic. These guys are professionals. You know, they show up to play. They have professional pride. So you can't say, okay, well, they have this week schedule and, you know, we're going to guarantee ourselves wins. And that's what really befuddles me about the Mets with this, you know, we're going to shut these guys down. I'm not really understanding, you know, people who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. You know how that, that uh, saying goes. I mean, look at the Nationals did a few years about when Strasburg was actually a legit, you know, threat and a good pitcher and somebody that you can really fear. I think kind of he's he gotten into a meeting. Yeah, and, at that point. And, and they just looked at it like, okay, we're going to get all of these World Series in the next five to ten years. We don't need to waste him or we're going to stay. I mean, I don't know what people save. You know, it's the thing that you argue with Joe about a lot when he's here on the show, you know, about the future and, and, and assets and, and prospects. And, you know, like, like with last year, the argument with Geno Smith, oh, well, he's the quarterback of the future. But the future is now. The future is, is on Sunday in the National Football well, this is now. This is 2015. I mean, Tom Seaver pitched 250 in.
innings or more 11 times in his career. He went 270, Mike, seven times. In 85, Dwight Gooden did 276 innings. I mean, this is something. What is the magic number that prevents an injury? I, you know, I talked to Jim Cott about this. I, a couple of weeks ago, Dale Murphy was here uh, when the, the day that the uh, after the national uh, the Rockies yanked that guy at City Field after 75 pitches, and the Mets came back in the late innings. I mean, why these pitch count things are so ridiculous? You know, why is 75 the number, or why is 100 the number? If he goes one on one, is funny mojo. In, in Seaver's age 21 season, 1966, playing in AAA Jacksonville for the Mets. He, now, again, this is baseball reference, and I don't know how great the minor league, and I know Seaver you know, was a, uh, a guy that was a little older. He wasn't coming out of high school, so I can't even talk, speak to his, his amateur experience from innings perspective. You know, it was 210 innings. His next year, in 1967, he went up to 251. Now, Rick Peterson, who I respect a lot, always talks about that 30-inning threshold. Um, and I, and I, and to a certain degree, I understand what Rick is saying about pacing people and building up stamina, but there's a way to do it. And I also think once you've gone over, especially with uh, Harvey, who pitched nothing last year because of the injury, it's either you're going to go a hundred, 120 innings and really ease them in. Or once you hit that, that, you know, around 200 inning threshold, is there really a difference between 200 and 220 and 221? That's exactly my point. And I, I said that to Jim Cott. I I wonder if there is. And Jim Cott, you know, pitched four decades in the major leagues. I mean, he was there in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I said, Jim, what's the number? And he just shakes his head and he just says to me, there is none. He goes, people don't realize you build arm strength by pitching. About the pitcher's body. Every pitcher is different. Look at Jacob DeGrom's body versus Harvey. You know, DeGrom is more Pedro-esque. He's skinnier. I mean, Pedro was very skinny. And he's having a similar type of year that you would expect out of Pedro Martinez, and he hasn't broken down. But they're not really talking about him, uh, you know, not pitching. I'm sure that'll be the case. They've got to be careful with this. The, the point is, and I want to go quickly uh, uh, to the Yankees. We actually got already a couple of calls on the line there before we get to Clappish uh, at about 1020. Um, the thing about the, 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 the whole situation is, you want to spot in Matt's fine, but already. But you're going to throw Logan Verrett at Coors Field in a pennant race. You know what, Matt? I, want, Mojo, I almost feel this is almost about Coors Field as it is about um, skipping Harvey Stark. Because you saw yesterday, anybody doesn't matter who you are, you're you're neutralized. Coors Field's interesting. Coors Field went from wild video game numbers in the '90s consistently. So then the humidor came in about, you know, 2002, I believe it was. And it got normal for a while, Mojo. Looks like it's going. Now, now you got no PEDs in the game, supposedly. And now it looks like at times it's going back. So I don't yeah. know. Maybe the, the, between the PEDs for the pitchers and people being able to, to be on their game with uh, amphetamines and the, the, the humidor. And it was funny because I think it was Gary Cohen talking last night during the game about how they're starting to have their own deflate gate at Coors Field because now they got to observe to make sure that the Rockies and the opposition both get humidor balls. So it's like the flake mm-hmm. gate now has gone baseball version. So think about that. Oh, I, I, you know, that was a topic that was uh, brought up on, on, on a moderate level when I was out at the Patriots uh, on Thursday. Yes, the, the whole deflate, you know, with the humidor and stuff. Mike, I, I just don't get what they're doing. You know, the thing like with Harvey, like, 
you know, they had games where they had big leads and they let them pitch into the eighth inning. You know, those were the games, if you want to preserve innings, where you maybe take them out. But, you know, but the problem with the Mets, and we talked about this last week, is other than those eighth and ninth guys, you just have no trust in what they bring out of the bullpen. Uh, none of those guys that Collins marches in the sixth and seventh inning are, are any right. – buddy that you want to put your faith in you know my dad used to always have a, a, a saying my um, you know if you had your last thousand dollars and you had to pay the rent what guy would you put your money on you know and that would you know you look at certain guys and certainly there's nobody in that bullpen if you had your last thousand dollars and had to pay the rent and needed a shutout inning in the sixth or seventh there's nobody in that bullpen that you would feel absolutely 100 percent confident that you're going to throw out there and he's going to perform for you to protect that one run lead uh in the sixth and the seventh and bridge it to your you know clippered and familiar uh situation in the eighth and ninth and then collins you know you watch him and you watch the way he does it and there are times where I, I feel give Terry a break. He's doing a good job in certain aspects, you know, with the lineup and who he's putting in and putting out. But then you watch him the way he manages his bullpen, and you just scratch your head at some of the moves that he makes and how he how he does things, and you know the, the, feel. the confidence he has level. A feel. Yeah, he pitches sometimes to the stat, not necessarily the uh, the game itself. By the way, the number is six four six seven one six eight one eight seven. We got a couple on hold. I'll see if I can get to everybody before Clappish. Uh, 845 area code, 845642. What's your name? And we are on with uh, Mike and Mojo here on this Saturday morning. Yeah, this is Paul in New City, guys. How are you guys doing today? I tell What's you, Mike, up? There's, there's nothing more pleasurable than than reading a, a, a tweet of Mike Silva during a Mets baseball <laughs> yeah, game. That's not, I, I, that's, not what, that's not what I'm hearing on Twitter the last few weeks. No, oh, my God. People, but, people but, have either come in droves or left in droves, depending on this, the day. This one, this one got me, Mike. I love this one. So, essentially, Hannibal and the Boob are going to let Gil Martin pitch nine <laughs> innings warming up in the pen. That was one of my... Here's the thing. Here's the rule. Now, who's Hannibal, Mike? Is, is Warth and Hannibal and Terry's the Boob? I call him. Yeah, and Terry's the boob, and, and Dan Wharton's Hannibal. Here's essentially what happens. My girlfriend basically said, look, I don't care if you watch these games <laughs> nightly. She said, but I just can't listen to the to you get upset and agitated. It's it's Because these games end late, it's disrupting her sleep. So I said, all right. She says, you have to find another outlet. So Twitter last night was that outlet. I had to kind of keep it to that, and I just couldn't take it anymore. But, you know, a lot of this stuff, look, here's the thing what people don't realize. I'm just trying to have fun on Twitter. It was great. Um, I mean, it's classic. That's what I mean. But I, I do think the Mets, what worked out perfectly for the Mets in this series, and, and if they skip with skipping Harvey, you don't want to expose the, why would you just expose DeGrom, Harvey, and Syndergaard to that, to that field if you had, if you didn't have to? And, and they've actually had the opportunity to yeah. miss all those three, when you think about it. And if they could, but if you they do need strikeout pitchers. Yeah, but, 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 Paul, I don't want to give a game away either. You know, why are you just flushing the toilet and going with Logan Verrett? I flushing the toilet. I think Logan Verrett's going to pitch well. I think he's going to come in and pitch well. And I don't have a problem with Logan Verrett. I think you're playing the lot. you got to remember, Cologne is a contact in, pitcher. Cologne yeah. is a contact pitcher. He can't he, – Cologne is about precise location. Contact and precise location are two things that just can't happen at Coors Field because of the atmosphere. I mean, I don't think all those home runs that maybe even the ones that uh, Suspedes hit, uh, maybe the first one, I don't know if all those would have been home runs elsewhere. Um, they just flew out of there. I mean, there's, there's, you know, it's, it's a launch well, pad. So. With, uh, with, with, um, what's his name? With, <laughs> with, uh, the way that ball flew out of, out of center field when, uh, when he, when Travis Garneau hit that ball dead center. That showed you something. He was like 425 feet dead center. So if something was up right. in, that, in that ballpark last night. 
But right. well, I, I I agree with you 100 percent with with these with, with with Terry watching him manage. It, it is it is like it, it is it is like watching uh, the, the, the the absent-minded professor out there. He just he cannot <laughs> he cannot he, he can't handle the big game, and he scares the hell out of me down the stretch. But he's our manager. He's kept the team together somehow. Uh, I don't know if it, if that's if that's overrated or maybe it's just the veteran leadership that's come in, or the guys like Cologne, the guys like Uribe who's come in and, and loosened it up a little bit. But the but the turning point for me in the season was when he put the lineup of Mayberry. Um, who do you, who do you have it? He, he had the three, four, five hitters were, were batting a combined, I think, four hundred between the three of them, and then they turned around and 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 then they made the trades to change change the season. That, that changed the season. But he put that lineup out there to say, look, this is my three, four, five guys. This is what I'm going to bat with. you got to do something. And now, and all of a sudden, turned around and did something. Right. Well, Paul, listen, thanks for the call. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, Mojo. We're going to have uh, Bob Klappish on in a couple of minutes, and uh, we'll talk Yankees. He's at Yankee Stadium, uh, you know, Mets, and uh, Bob is going to give us a few minutes of uh, his time. So uh, really appreciate it. You are listening to the Weekend Watchdogs, Mike Silva, Joe Bono, uh, not Joe Bono, actually it's Jim Mojo Morrison taking you uh, all the way up till noon. The number is 646-716-8187, and we'll be right back. A disagreement between the weekend watchdogs starts with a growl. Money does not matter to them. It doesn't matter if these guys have diminished returns at the end of the contract. They will spend more. Yeah, but you can't build a 25-man roster with the way that the... The salaries are going. Leads to a bark. <laughs> so the New York Yankees are going to go out and sign and make Do a big more. Push. They did. They're, they're the they're extreme. Done. And they're, they're not go. done this offseason. And ends with a bite. <laughs> they can't implement or supplement anybody. Last year's a perfect example. They can with their dollars. You just can't build a team like that. They are building a team like no, that. No, they're going to fall short because they're not going to be able to fill their second base spot, their third base spot. Tune in to the Weekend Watchdogs, Saturday, 10 to noon on Blog Talk Radio. All right, we're back. Uh, hoping to have Bob Klappish on in, in a couple of minutes here to talk a little bit about the Mets, talk about the Yankees. Uh, hey, Mojo, you know what? I'm glad that my tweets are getting uh, people's attention. Like I said, they all either come in droves or they leave in droves over here. Well, you, you know, know according saying? to the man that sits in with you every week, you're very negative out on Twitter, and you don't bring a positive vibe to the fan base that listens to you it's kind of funny you know your your tweets versus joe's tweets are 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 just like you know 180 as far as the way you uh you know do uh your your twitter uh, accounts and it's just funny how you guys go back and forth it's like the odd couple of uh twitter uh you know one of the things i want to ask bob you know they're, they're retiring pettit and posada mike I mean, I find that to be a little bit sacrilegious, you know, to the to the immortals that actually played for the New York Yankees. Uh, the guys like Ruth and Garrick and DiMaggio and Barra. Man, I mean, Jorge Posada. I mean, he's not even. I mean, yep, he wasn't well, even. Mojo, a, a, well, well, go ahead. I'll, I'll give you some numbers. And, and joining us uh, from Yankee Stadium, giving us a couple of minutes. Uh, you can check him out on the record. Uh, it's uh, Bob Clappish, Bob, Mike Silva, Jim Mojo, Morrison. Uh, how you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So, starting with the the Yankees, uh, you're at Yankee Stadium. Are you looking forward to the retirement of a couple of legendary '90s Yankees? Bob, I, yeah. I was surprised when I when I saw how Andy Pettit. You know, and I didn't feel like this was a Hall of Famer when he played. Andy Pettit, in his 15 seasons, he actually leads the Yankees in strikeout starts and his third in regular season wins and innings. And then Posada's top 20, if you want to use advanced stats in war, and uh, 
you know, top 10, I think, in home runs. Uh, put a different perspective on uh, their numbers getting retired. Well, I think that, I mean, there's no doubt the Yankees are on a, you know, sort of a campaign now to revisit the late 90s. And, you know, there was definitely some concern last year about attendance. And I really feel that they were looking for ways to bring people to the ballpark. I mean, it hasn't been a problem this year. They're drawing well. Um, so I think that factor really is a little less crucial for them. But, look, there's no doubt it was the best time in the last generation for this team. I have no problem with, you know, retiring numbers and giving out plaques. I mean, it's a little overdone. The talent pool has gotten a little thin. You know, I was thinking this maybe let's uh, let's let's take care of all the Yankees. You know, Tony Lazare. You know, you really where do you stop? But as a whole, I have no problem with the Yankees revisiting their history. You know, they they've won so much over the years, and you know, if they want to indulge themselves, that's fine. The fans seem to love it. Bob, this is Jim Morrison down here in Charlotte. Uh, I'm actually at the BBT ballpark, uh, getting ready to work a Triple A game. Uh, I, I I agree with what you're saying. It's their prerogative. You know, Bobby Richardson was down here a couple of weeks ago, and I said it. I said it's kind of to me though a little sacrilege. You know, it's a little blasphemous to the immortals, the the Roots and the Gehrigs and the DiMaggios to put Jorge Posada out there. You know, or to put Bernie Williams in the same sentence as DiMaggio and Mantle. I mean, these guys were good, but they were nowhere near that level. And isn't that Monument Park and that whole persona out there supposed to be for the immortals and the all-time greats? I mean, once you give it to everybody, doesn't the meaning get diminished, don't you think? There's no doubt if you want to use that definition, you know, by those parameters that you just said, then nobody else gets in there. I mean, there, there will be no other Babe Ruth's or Mickey Mantles. I mean, in terms of pure production and overall talent, you know, that, then you might as well shut, shut the gates forever to Monument Park. I think what the Yankees have done is, you know, tweak the definition of what that that feature is or what that attraction is. I think the Yankees are celebrating an era now more than individual players, which, you know, is their prerogative. I mean, it was one of the finest times in Yankee history. I mean, they dominated the American League at a time when the talent the talent level was great. I mean, they were a great team, and it was a great time to be a Yankee, a Yankee fan. And I think the Yankees more than just more than specifically celebrating Posada. Look, obviously, he doesn't belong there next to Ruth and Gehrig and, and DiMaggio, obviously. And no Barron and Dickey, I mean, and Barron, yeah. Obviously, he obviously doesn't belong in that same conversation, but in terms of, of Yankee success and Yankee eras, the late 90s is right up there with any other time in which the Yankees were prosperous. So I think that's what the Yankees have done. Bob, when you look at the current team, they're, they're in pretty good shape. I mean, I know they're in a dogfight for the AL East, but when you start to look at the wild card, you don't want to play in that, that playing game but it's hard to see the Yankees losing five games to either Anaheim or uh, potentially Baltimore. How do you feel? We're, start, we're really in the stretch drive now. Uh, how do you feel about this Yankees team, who some felt were, was going to be a, a losing team or maybe a second division club earlier in the year? Yeah, I was one of those people. I mean, I guess completely wrong on them. Uh, I've made all my picks so far have been completely wrong. So, I mean, I'm the kiss of death. But I think the Yankees are a good team. It's not the best Yankee team I've ever covered, but it's far better than average. And you have to remember one thing about playoff baseball, or stretch run baseball, I should say. Starting pitching will get you to the playoffs, and it's the bullpens that determine how successful you are in October. I think the Yankees have enough to get to October. I mean, it's not the division. I think they're going to win the wild card. I mean, they just have enough. I mean, it's not a great starting rotation. Uh, I don't know if you're going to beat the David Prices, uh, you know, Johnny Quaters. I don't know if you can beat those individual aces, but they have enough to get to where they have to be. And then you're talking about in October in a short series, low-scoring games, the back end of that bullpen, 
is really the difference maker for them. So I do see them being a factor. You know, conversely, I think the Mets will have difficulty because of a lack of a of dependable bullpen. But I guess we can talk about that in another question. But I, I do see the Yankees as being a – I don't know if they're going to win the World Series. I, I highly doubt it. But they will be around in October. You see them doing anything. Uh, I know everyone loves Stephen Drew, but any kind of waiver move. Uh, it looks like it's going to be tough to get – forget bullpen uh, help, but get players through waivers of any kind of significance. Yeah, I, I don't see anything. You know, I haven't heard anything, and I just don't think that Brian Cashman has – has a real hunger to make any moves at this point. I mean, the team is relatively successful, although, you know, who knows? I never saw it coming that they'd lose two straight to the Indians. But I think, you know, let's see where they are, really, by the middle of next week. They've got three big games with the Astros, and that, that'll be a good litmus, litmus test as to how, how really competitive the Yankees are against elite teams. Obviously, they're better than the average clubs. They can beat the better-than-average club. But against, you know, the three or four teams who they are likely to face in the playoffs, in fact, if it's been postseason start today, they would be facing Houston. So let's see how they do in the middle of next week. As of right now, to answer your question, I don't see them doing anything. Bob, we're talking with Bob Clappish here on the weekend. Watchdogs, you mentioned the Mets, so let's transition over to them. Mike and I talked about at the top of the show uh, the skipping of Matt Harvey and the plan to you know, kind of skip over him uh, down the stretch a couple of times. Syndergaard now in the conversation of having some starts skipped. I mean, didn't they learn anything from what the Nats did with Strasburg a few years back? Do you agree with what the Mets are doing, or do you think that it's the right course of action? I have no problem with it. I mean, given the state of the race there, I mean, the Nationals have just pretty much folded it up, unless there's some dramatic turnaround there. they got a change in leadership, or, you know, Bryce Harper really wants to take the team on his shoulders, which I don't think he wants to do. Unless, you know, things change. Uh, I think the Mets have the division pretty much in hand, and I think it's okay to make these moves. Now, if it was a dogfight and, you know, every game was really like life and death for them, these final 40 games, I would question whether or not it's smart to hold Harvey out or Syndergaard. But given their cushion, you know, it's a make an investment now that will pay off in late September or October. I, I'm fine with it. I mean, look, we can go on all day about the innings limit and whether or not it's, it's preventative medicine or not. But in this case, it's okay to err on the side of caution. I'm okay with it. Now, you mentioned the Mets' bullpen. Obviously, other than Clippard and Familia, there is nothing reliable that Terry Collins can march out there, sixth, seventh inning, and then if they get into extras, Stephen Matz coming back from injury. Mike and I talked about it last week. I think that they should groom him to work out of the bullpen down the stretch, uh, use him in a David Price role like the Rays did in 2008, and bring him in there, add an extra arm to that bullpen that's reliable with talent and dependable. Do you think the Mets would do that with Matt, or they, you know, they're just not going to take the chance of putting him in the bullpen? Well, let me just say I have not seen Matt's pitch live yet. I mean, I didn't see him a lot of spring training. There was only that one game I, I caught him on TV. I mean, I spent a majority of my time covering the Yankees. So um, my, my opinion of him is uh, a little bit removed. He obviously has a killer curveball. He's got a great arm, and I do think he's got a great future, You know, assuming he stays healthy. You know, we'll see about that. But to answer your question, um, you know, I think the problem with the Met bullpen is that you have guys out there who've never done it before. I mean, Familia's got a great arm, got great action on that two-seamer. He's got terrific stuff, great swing and, swing and miss stuff. But he's never pitched in a pennant race. And I think, I think that's true across the board is that these pitchers are either inexperienced or lack the talent to come through in a, in a high-leverage situation. I think, frankly, you know, they're all scared. Uh, you're asking me to put Matt's out there as well, who's never done it, a rookie in a pennant race, 
he's got the skill to do it, but he doesn't have the experience to do it. And we don't know if he has the maturity to do it. I just don't know if, you know, as I said to you, the Mets bullpen, I think will be their undoing because they just don't have any muscle memory when it comes to October. It's an entirely different game once you come to the postseason. And you better have thick skin. You better have Neil's skills, nerves of steel, excuse me. I mean, I know it's a, a cliche, but it happens to be true. You have to have a different sort of psychological mindset to pitching games like that. And I don't know if the Met relievers have that. They have the arms. I just don't know if they have the heart or the experience yet. We shall see. We have uh, Bob Clappish of the record at Bob Clapp on Twitter. A couple of questions before we let him run. He's at Yankee Stadium. Uh, Terry Collins, uh, obviously, you know, kept the team together when it was looking like it was going to fall apart or earlier in the year. I mean, Bob, forget the clubhouse. He seems to do okay with that. And, and you know, all right, the media, he, he does what he has to do. He really struggles managing a bullpen, even with just the warming up of players. Uh, I think that Baltimore game early in the week they almost blew uh, is a perfect example. Uh, you talked about players being scared and blinking. Uh, what about the manager here? Because his track record in pennant races, not great if you look back at Houston and Anaheim when the times they yeah. were in the pennant races. Yes, what you're saying is true. I mean, he, no one has confused him, ever confused him with Connie Mack. I mean, he's, or Casey. He's not a, <laughs> I mean, he's not a great tactician. Uh, and we shall see. I mean, I think the jury's still out on whether or not he's capable of winning close games in the postseason or in the pennant race. You know, so far he's gotten a break by the, by the fact that the Washington has just disappeared on the Mets, so he hasn't really had a gun to his head yet. But don't discount or diminish how much his his charisma, his energy. I mean, there's no metric, obviously, to measure that. But he has a positive effect on his players. I mean, he... If you do, if you believe that managers can make a difference by the way they interact with their players, by whether whether or not they can extract the most from their players, whether or not they can get their players to all pull in the same direction, and I believe that's a big part of managing. That's why Joe Torre was so successful in the '90s when he was really in his prime. He was able to get the most out of his players, and I think Collins is a rung below Joe Torre, obviously, but he is that kind of manager where he can get the most out of his players. They believe in him, they play for him, they like him, and that's. That's good for a couple of wins. That makes a difference in the final one-loss record. Now, is he great at moving the chess pieces? No, he's not great. I don't think he's a disaster. I'm not one of his harshest critics. But I think he is lacking in that area. But so far, I believe he makes up, with, makes up for it with that sort of positive energy. People like playing for him. They like being around him. You know, whether or not it's good enough in October, we'll see. But right now, I, I do think he's doing a satisfactory job overall. Bob, last thing before we let you go, two parts. First, I want to make this fun. Nationals fire Matt Williams, hire Wally Backman down the stretch. And number two, what are some of the stories you're looking at uh, for the next five weeks as we head into the uh, the end of the season here into the playoffs? Well, I would love to. I'm a big Wally Backman fan for the reasons we just talked about, Terry Collins plus one. He has this, you know, this innate ability to get players to play for him. They love him. They respect him. Every young player who's ever come across Wally Backman walks away saying, man, that guy knows the game. He is really on. He is somebody that I want to play for. And that's that's across the board. I mean, it's been years and years and years of young players who have had a great experience with Backman. There's something there that you can't teach, that you simply have or you don't have. Unfortunately, he's so old school and he's so he's so 80s era centric. I mean, in a time when players said exactly what they felt, they weren't politically correct. Wally is still that person. And he just doesn't fit in sort of the political milieu right now. He's just not PC enough for most general managers, which is too bad because he is a great baseball manager, a great baseball person, and would help a team like the Nationals. You know what's wrong with the Nationals? 
Matt Williams is a weak presence. He's just he has everything we just talked about with Joe Torre and, and, and Terry Collins. He is on the other end of the spectrum. He is a non-factor because the Matt, the Matt Nationals' best player, Bryce Harper, is unable to lead. He has an obviously enormous talent, but he doesn't really care about being a leader. And there's a difference between being the best player and being a leader. He is just wrapped up in himself. And I, and I you know, I'm sorry for being so long-winded about it, but I saw the same thing with about a decade ago. With the Mets, where Mike Piazza, obviously legendary, a generational talent, I should say, but he didn't exude that leadership. He really didn't interact with the players at all. He was just in his corner of a clubhouse doing his crossword puzzles, and that has a corrosive effect on a team. Bryce Harper is the same way with the Nationals. Matt Williams can't get Bryce Harper to interact or be a leader. I think Wally Backman could. I'd love to see him. I don't think it's going to ever happen, but I'd love to see him be the Nationals manager down the stretch. It's a great, crazy idea. In terms of the stories that I'm working on, in terms of the stories I'm working on, I'm working on in the last five weeks of the season, it's all game-related. The games matter. So I come to the ballpark to write what I see in front of me. Bob, I well, couldn't agree with you more on Wally. Mike, just at one point, I got to see him up close and personal, spent some time when he was with Buffalo, came through here a couple of times, and uh, got to spend time watching him uh, up close. And tremendous tactician and uh, motivator. He was here when Harvey was, right before Harvey got called up uh, back in his rookie year, and Wally Backman is a major league manager. It's just somebody's got to give him a chance to do it. I'm well, waiting for somebody to have the guts to do it. I mean, he deserves it, and he'll do great if somebody just opens the door for him. Bob, enjoy the game. Thanks for a few minutes, and uh, let's do it again. All righty? Anytime. Thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Bob, okay, Bob Clappish, the uh, the record, longtime uh, journalist here in New York. Um, a little bit on Twitter, at Bob Clapp, but more old school and interesting segment. Gave us a lot to talk about there, Mojo. And we got some uh, callers on hold on the line. So uh, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs, Mike Silva, and uh, Jim Mojo Morrison subbing in for Joe Bono. See, I, I got that right now, Jim. I, it's so easy with Joe Bono rolling off my tongue. Here. Joe's We're probably giggling over. out in Greece with you making those references to him. <laughs> that is that is true. We're taking you all the way up to noon. The number six four six seven one six eight one eight seven. Listen to us live on replay at weekendwatchdogs.com. We'll be right back. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Every Saturday between ten and noon, Mike Silva and Joe Bono bring you the Weekend Sports with a New York slant. A one-stop shop of quality commentary, hard-hitting debates, intelligent guests, and entertaining pop culture references. Go to WeekendWatchdogs.com for an archive of the latest shows, iTunes subscription, and to contact the show. It's Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Don't miss it. Mike Silva and Jim Mojo Morris. Weekend Watchdogs. Go to the show live and replay at Weekend Watchdogs. Check us out on iTunes at Mike Silva Media at Jim Mojo Morris. And Mojo, I know that uh, you're going to be playing Where's Waldo around BB&T Ballpark today, but I have a special caller on the line, Mojo, calling us, I don't know how many thousands of miles away from his uh, vacation, is the actual co-host of the Weekend Watchdogs, Joe Bono. Joe! How you doing? You're on with Mike and Mojo. Are you there, Joe? Well, I guess he's not. I thought he was. He actually did. They, they have. Did they have? actually have phones in Greece, or is Joe like on a tin can trying to get through? <laughs> I thought that was Joe. 
so there you go. I had a, a little. Hey, Mojo, we got. Uh, let's see, Long Island six three one two seven seven. You're on the air. What's your name? You're on the air with Mike and Mojo. Hello, Mike. Yes. What, Mike? Yes. Hello. Hello, Mike. Yes. Okay, Mike. Can you hear me? Yeah, perfectly clear. Okay, good, good. I wasn't sure that uh, it was my turn. My, anyway, my name is Joe, and um, and I'm a first-time caller. Usually, I listen Thanks. to your podcast, and Appreciate then I call Mike, uh, call Mike to give him help when I'm upset about something. He knows who I am. <laughs> okay. But any rate, <laughs> Mike and Mojo, good, uh, good show. Listen, I'm calling about Collins because he's upsetting me. I'm a big Mets fan, going back to the '60s. And Collins is too clever by a half. He loves to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. I'll tell you why. This thing with uh, uh, with extending or reducing the innings is a bunch of nonsense. He's going to risk further injury by doing this because these clowns don't, do not understand kinesiology and the uh, the body chemistry. Uh, pitching is all about repetition. It's all about muscles remaining warm. I'm not saying uh, burn them out. But uh, when you uh, skip a start, think about it. You're going 10 days without throwing a baseball competitively, which means that uh, when, when that start comes around, Harvey's going to be stiff. He's going to be off his rhythm. He's not going to be throwing normally, and I think he's risking injury. And um, why don't they do something different? Instead of skipping a start, reduce the innings. Go five and shut him down. Okay. Give them a chance to win the game or lose the game, whatever the case may be, and uh, and shut them down. Because this thing with the innings, it's not scientific. Nobody knows how many is too much or how many is, too, is enough. And um, and it's just going to hurt. And not only going to hurt Harvey, we're going to throw away a chance to uh, make the playoffs. And let me tell you something. Collins has an ulterior motive here because uh, Harvey, he's been throwing a little bit uh, – He's been a little bit off lately. His, uh, his velocity isn't that great, or not as high as it used to be. And I think he believes that he's going to get hammered on Sunday uh, by Colorado. And you know what? If he's going to get hammered and he, he's due for a good hammering, just skip him and uh, throw somebody else in there as, uh, 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 to, uh, to take his place. What do you think? Um, cool. I think you're right. I think the part of it is, and thanks for the call over there, um, I think that Cover, this is about management covering their rear end. Mojo, this is all corporate politics, this skipping starts here. Look, you don't want to go from 80 innings to 300 innings. There's abuse. We've seen abuse uh, with pitchers. Look at Dusty Baker. He loved uh, abusing pitchers. But here's the thing, Mojo. You know that. That was his bullpen, that was his bullpen Mike. I mean, Mark, he... Look at Mark Pryor's mechanics. And Mark Pryor was destined to have on trouble. And they also talked about Mark Pryor. I was looking at a... I don't know, I was reading something, I was watching something. Mark Pryor had a collision at home plate earlier in the 2003 season that they feel actually ne- he never recovered from, and that's part of why he had all those shoulder issues. So Yeah, Kerry, uh, Wood, Kerry Wood was similar too. I mean, but, you know, Joe, and that was a very good call, and I thank you uh, for calling in and listening uh, to us. I mean, you're kind of preaching to the choir, Joe, on that call. Kerry Collins upsets my partner here today, Mike, Mike Silver, just as much, I think, as he upsets you. And uh, I think that you know, this whole scientific notion of we're going to you know, come up with a number, and that's the point. And I, like I said, I've asked former major league players, I've asked scouts, 
What's the number? Give me a number. 240, 210. What, and mechanics. if we go one... It's Yes, yeah. it's all about mechanics. It's about conditioning. It's about stress. I mean, you watch a guy like Vance Worley pitched yesterday for Indianapolis, the Pi- uh, Pirates uh, minor league team, and he had thrown 83 pitches, Mike, six innings, and they were about to take him out. And he didn't have one stressful inning, and they're taking him out with zero runs, 83 pitches. And I, and I turned around to, and I said to uh, somebody, I says, "What are they doing?" And then they bring the bullpen guy in, and sure enough, bing, bang, boom, three hits, and and, and Charlotte's got a chance to get back into the ball game. I mean, they outthink themselves. They outsmart themselves with all of these scientific notions that, well, this is going to be the set number of innings and he's not going to get hurt. I mean, again, using the Strasburg model, they shut him down and he still got hurt because his mechanics and all of the other things that you and I just talked about, the caller just talked about, they come into effect. It's not about numbers. It's about mechanics. It's about preparation. It's about conditioning. And it's about management. You put a Frank Viola and a Wally Backman in charge of this staff. You don't have to worry about innings, Mike. You just have to worry about, you know, the preparation and, and the mental approach to it because they will make sure that these guys pitch. Seaver can pitch 270 innings 11 times in his career, seven times, 250, 11 times, never had arm issues. Good in all those guys. I mean, it's a matter of how you prepare to do it. And, and it drives me absolutely crazy. And, you know, hey, Paul wanted to get him. Yeah, we actually, Mojo, and, and this is big, we actually did finally get Joe up from, I believe he's in Greece. So uh hate to interrupt you there, Mojo, but uh, we won't keep Joe too long. Joe, did you finally figure out your technology there in a essentially a bankrupt country that you're visiting right now? How you doing? You're on with Mike and Mojo. Guys, can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, I can Joe, hear you. Is it true to the rumor that you're there to in, invest in the Greece comeback the uh, the day I got here, the prime minister actually resigned. So that was a good thing. But I'm actually calling you. I'm calling you from my villa um, overlooking the beautiful island of Santorini, and where and if if you were out to dinner where I went to dinner last night and walked around Santorini, you would not think that this country was in danger of default, and uh, you know pretty much on the verge of collapse uh, based upon the uh, thing that people were doing. What what now? What time is it over there, Joe? Ahead of you guys, so we're looking at a quarter to six p.m. Oh, okay. So this is the so. time in between in between pool and dinner time. Luckily, the weekend was fading in, and I had a call because Mike Silva and you guys touched on it already. These tweets are just—you are insatiable. Like you cannot be happy at all. You just Joe, I, mean, I, I made the I made the comment. I says your your tweets versus Mike's tweets, it's like the odd couple. <laughs> I mean Mets are I, I understand they're not they're not a perfect team, but they never were a perfect team. They've always been a flawed roster. And this bullpen, I know it's the soft underbelly of the team, but look at the injuries that this bullpen has sustained. Look at the Henry Mejia nonsense. You have to go with what you get. Hopefully this team holds on. Hopefully the Nationals don't think get things turned around and really blitz through September and force the Mets to win a lot of close, tight ball games late in the year. And I think what the real question is moving forward with this pitching staff is which what's going to be the alignment in this bullpen? Can they use either Syndergaard, Mats, or someone else in the bullpen because they need someone else besides Clipper and Celia? I know you're not a big fan of Clipper. And no, I didn't say that, Joe. Yeah, I worry. I worry about the back end numbers. 
I worry about the back end. Listen, I think Clippard Familia is fine. I mean, look, any bullpen is going to be shaky. But you look, Clippard's not missing a lot of bats. That's always a concern. I actually like Robles, but he's hittable because his ball, if it doesn't, it's either straight or it's straight. Uh, tailing away from the batter. Um, and look, O'Flaherty's a lefty-on-lefty guy. They got Dario Alvarez probably coming up today for, uh, for Duda, who's probably going to go on the DL. So that's another lefty that's had some success. Uh, here's the problem, Joe. When you're searching for your seventh inning guy on August uh, 22nd, that's uh, that's a recipe for disaster. But I will say this, Joe. Maybe I'm in a bad mood because I miss you. Did you ever think that? Because the minute oh, you wow. went on vacation, we had bad. the Geno Smith. Did you have the, we had the Geno Smith controversy. I've been annoying Mets fans. Like I said to Mojo, either I get followers in droves or I lose them in droves, depending on my Mike's my got the too. NAACP after him uh, for his Geno Smith comments, but Joe. <laughs> And I was uh, I was fortunately in the in the United States and that was breaking and I had random people sending me stuff. Don't you know this guy? And I was like, ah, I don't know who you're talking about. Um, but uh, listen, <laughs> I wouldn't expect listen, anything less show on that one. <laughs> I mean, you guys. I mean, you guys know me. I'm six hours ahead of you guys in Italy. I'm seven hours ahead of you guys in Greece. And I'm waking up at four or five o'clock in the morning to check to see what's going on in the Met games. And twice during that Pittsburgh Pirates series, the games I'm up. Games going to extra innings, and I have to, you know, stay with it. And all I'm following is, you know, guys like Mike Silva and James Flippin, who's a, a friend of ours too. And just the negativity, the negativity for a team that wasn't expected to be in first place in this division whatsoever. And they're five games up. I mean, I understand they got swept at home by the Pirates, and they're 0-13 against them in the Cups, but they've actually gained half a game since the start of last weekend. So whatever happened, happened. Let's move forward. I'm Get another win here in Colorado. Come home. I'm pushing them for excellence. That's what I'm trying to do. But how are you going to push them to excellence in the bullpen, Mike? I mean, this team See, has flaws in it. They're getting David Wright. Yeah. Listen, they've had injuries. Blevins, Mejia. I mean, Goodell went down. Leatherson just Tommy John surgery. Like, they, you can't have answers all the time. They're not a, a perfect team. Out of the team so that make you, the playoffs, they're probably going to have the worst record. Are you looking for any offensive linemen over in Europe for the Giants? No. Listen, I'll see how they – we'll see. I'll read the reports as to how they play today. But this right side is an absolute disaster. And, and listen, an offensive line um, can obviously submarine an entire team's offense despite all the weapons you have on the outside and the three running backs that the Giants had and the approved play of Larry Donnell hopefully in the passing game from a year ago. They've got to figure out this right side. Guys like Paul Dettino can sit and continue to believe that the – you know, the, ultimately, the right tackle on this team is not on the roster, and they seem to not want to move Justin to the right tackle. He did not play well there last year at times. They want to keep him inside as a guard, but they're going to have to figure this thing out. That and the, and the secondary, the safety position is a mess as well. Um, they can try to spin it positively, the Giants, about how much they like their guys, but I am as down on the Giants as a whole, as I've been in each of the last, more so than each of the last two years when obviously they finished seven and nine and six and 10. So, um, I think a, it's a negative Joe, listen, right I'm disappointed. You're not, I'm going to have to be the voice of reason for the New York football giants. Since I'm, I'm always taking the, uh, the negative view. I guess I have to take the positive view on the giants at some point. I, I don't know how you can find a positive view on the on the offensive line, Mike. Uh, at least not yet. I mean, when will baby get give, back? Give him, we'll Joe. Give him, give him. Yeah, I was going to say, Joe. It's only week one of preseason. Give him some time. Get, they still have a couple of weeks to figure it out. 
whatever comes through the waiver wire. And like I told Mike last week, I think their schedule's favorable enough. I mean, they have Dallas opening week, but they always play well down there. And then after that, you saw what the Falcons do against the Jets uh, last week. They, they, you know, they don't play well on the road, so that's their home opener. And then they got a couple other winnable games in weeks three and four where the competition is, you know, defensively is not going to be too fierce. So by week four, week five, they should have it figured out. If they don't, they're going to be in trouble anyway. So I wouldn't be in panic mode yet. The secondary, I think, is a little bit more of a concern uh, than the offensive line. Now, Joe, you were, you were thinking about co-hosting the Well, show they're two today. biggest the names fact that you secondary. In, the fact that you called in, you're, you're, you're feeling the urge to do, a, to do some radio. <laughs> you're not allowed to, but you were, you were thinking about it. Come on, you be, be honest. I got my tan in yesterday, so I didn't have to kind of spend all day by the pool today. So I looked at the watch. I said, you know what, it might be a good time to go upstairs and see what you have on tap. And like I said, you've been getting me fired up with your tweets too. Like you proclaiming that the that the Mets are going to get swept in Colorado before the series starts. Like I understand that you're so against Collins. You don't like this front office. You don't like the manner in which they communicate. But, Mike, I can't tell whether or not you want this team to win or lose at this point. I j- it just it can't. The, the lines are so blurred for me on whether Mike Silver would rather the team win with Terry Collins or fall apart with Terry Collins so someone else gets in here next year. Well, I, I think we both agree if they don't win the division now that he's going to get fired. I mean, I, think I don't think there's any yeah. doubt about that. I mean, this is there for him. No more. Listen, there's no, he's got what he wanted. So he's got five games up. He got about five weeks left to play. He got what he wanted. Now he's got. To, now he's got to bring it home. Bad bullpen or no bad bullpen, no excuses on that. I think we're both in agreement on that. No, you're. You're. No, you're. You're 100 right. Uh, this went from a a season where, with all the injuries, you felt, hey, can this team get to 83, 84 wins and kind of take a little bit of a step forward? Now is that all we're looking for in 2015? To where it is now, where they have to win the division. Um, there's no excuses, and that will be right up there because of the la- the amount of momentum that this team and the fan base is picking up because of what's happened here over the last few weeks, and because of the trade they made with Cespedes and giving up Homer, they have to make the playoffs. Otherwise, this kind of steamrolls things. You know, 07 and 08 was one thing, but you had 2006. You got there a little bit. This is being a little bit different to kind of feel like you're about to turn the corner and then have to start back. You know all brand new next year without Cespedes and without some other key players as well. So, well, what do you got planned for the rest of the, before I let you go, what do you got planned for the rest of the night? Well, you this is day show, eight. Yeah. Well, this is day eight of 16 days on vacation. Um, and uh, tonight uh, we're going to a restaurant called bone here in Santorini. So I got that. Mm-hmm. And then tomorrow all day is on a catamaran starting at nine o'clock in the morning, 10 hours on a catamaran with the chef, music, on the boat, they take you outside, sunset, all the islands, and then we head over to Mykonos, and then eventually Athens, and then I'm home Sunday, August 31st. Joe, have you done any, have you done any Isles blog while you've been away? Uh, I just posted an article. <laughs> Joe Bono, gone but not forgotten. Hey, thanks for calling in, man, and uh, uh-huh. looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks, all right? No, you guys are doing a great job. Enjoy listening to you guys and appreciate you letting me uh, pop on here uh, for a few minutes and kind of get out my inner frustration with Mike Silva tweets, which I know <laughs> I share with. Can't wait, you know, can't can't wait to get you back for the football season. It's going to be fun. <laughs> All right, good talking to you, Mojo. Have a good – Enjoy your vacation, buddy. You know, Mojo, we never really got the uh, – 
you know, this is the first time you and Joe have had a live radio conversation since the Swiffer gate, uh, the whole Swiffer comment when he told you to get your Swiffer. How did that even, how did that fight with Joe even start? Was there any, like, um, what did, what, Oh, what Joe, because he, they, they, you were doing the, they were, they, he, they, he had the aisle. I was listening to the show in the first hour and you got ambushed by a bunch of the aisles bloggers and they came on and they were talking about they were rooting for Tampa Bay and the Rangers weren't winning enough, uh, you know, games uh, with style points in the playoffs and all this other nonsense. And I came on and I said, I said, and I made a comment about, you know, the, 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 their comments. And he got very upset with my questioning of the, uh, the analysis or whatever it was that was being done. And I had mentioned that for the first time in my life, I wanted to uh, go out there and uh, you know I was you know thinking about going to clean versus listening to a sports radio show you know because I hate cleaning and I have a cleaning person do my apartment usually uh, where I live and um, yeah that's kind of where uh, I uh, was was at so it was kind of funny but yeah and Joe got very upset about it and then you know I it wasn't like I, I came back for some other reasons you know I had some other stuff going on down here uh, you know with my with health and stuff I told you about that last week uh, so, you know, I, I actually had oral surgery one weekend and I had some other stuff and then the baseball stuff takes me, you know, and that's, and that's kind of what happened, but it had nothing to do with, with Joe personally. It's just a matter of just how things broke after that whole uh, incident that, that week. So it's just, you know, no big deal. Uh, you know, you know, a couple of things that you really should, you really should contemplate here. And I have to bring this up and I have to go back. So I know your position on Monument Park with the Yankees. And I'm not disputing anything with you. I mean, the Mets are one extreme. They don't retire anybody's number. And at this point, I think like Clapper well, they retired the one person. They retired the one person that deserves it, Mike, and that's Tom Seaver. You know, some of these other guys have well, weren't there long you, enough. You could, you could certainly make the argument that Mike Piazza was transcendent enough to know his numbers, and he's going to be a Hall of Fame. If he, go, if he goes in, if he goes in, then I say yes. If he goes in, all right, all right, I, I, go, Joe. I'm going to give you the top ten players. Um, in well, I'm gonna give me just adjust this for a second. I gotta make sure I adjust it. Um, hold on, I'm trying to. I'm baseball reference. I'm on baseball reference. So, Mike, I'm gonna make a transition as you're talking to me. If it gets too loud, let me know. Uh, can you right. can you still hear me? Okay. We got music in the background. So that, the fans will have to listen to us to deal with that a little bit. But, okay. Um, okay. The top 10 players in wins above replacement in uh, Yankees history. Going to go from 1 to 10, Mojo, and see if you're surprised about it. Ruth, Gehrig, Mantle, DiMaggio, Jeter, Berra, Dickey, A-Rod, Willie Randolph at number 9, Bernie Williams at number 10. Does that change your point of view on Willie and Bernie? That's wins above replacement. That's a stat. That's a baseball reference wins above replacement. Does that change your point of view on what you said earlier? Um, Not really. I mean, I just think that those honors of having your number retired, it belongs to the the guys that are just the head and shoulders. Like you know, like I told you, my dad used to always say to me, "If you everybody does it, then it's not special." 
You know, it's like if you let everybody in the Hall of Fame, then why do you have a Hall of Fame? It's just the criteria. And I thought Bernie Williams was a very – I thought he was an okay defensive player. He won a couple of gold gloves, but we all know gold gloves are a popularity contest and they're based on reputation. Yeah, the offense helped. And they're offensively because I don't think Bernie Williams really – he threw very well. He made a lot of bonehead plays in the outfield, but yet he got a golden glove. And I like Bernie Williams. I thought he was a very talented player. But, you know, he wasn't up there with those guys. I mean, all I'm saying is if you put those guys there, the only two guys that I put in Monument Park from that era was Jeter and Mariano. Those are the two guys that, to me, that were a head and shoulders, you know, in that immortality. Jeter got 3,000 hits. He had his five world championships. He was a captain. Willie Randolph was a very nice player, Mike, but he... Speaking, but he, of, I mean, which, speaking of which, you saw the little deadspin article about uh, Cashman and, and, and Jeter's... Uh, I mean, it's five years old, but their tiff about his contract back. And everybody knew the contract. Jeter was ticked off at the Yankees because they, they were hardballing him. When Jeter asked Cashman, said, you know, who else would you want at shortstop than me? And he goes, you really want me to answer that? He goes, yeah, Troy Tillowitzki. I probably could have had, if I go back to 2010, I probably could have had about another five or six players to that list if I really want to, though, Joe. No, I agree with I agree with that, and I saw that. You know, I mean, Jer- Derek Jeter was compensated for all of his service early on, and you know, the last five years of his contract, he was paid for the you know the, the beginning of his career. I mean, you and I, you know, a lot of people had a hard time you know accepting that notion, Mike. Uh, you know, the Yankees did take care of him. The late George Steinbrenner loved Derek Jeter, and as far as he was concerned, Derek Jeter was going to be a Yankee for the rest of his life and for his entire career for as long as he wanted to remain a Yankee. And they took care of Derek Jeter, and they overpaid him uh, at the end uh, for, for what his production was. But that's just what it was. But Derek Jeter brought a lot of extra things to the Yankees as far as the PR level, and that's why he was paid for what he was. As far as his production, you're right. There were a lot of other guys that could be out there. You know, and that was like the whole thing with the, the, the hypocrisy of the victory tour that Joe got mad. You know, it's like, well, he doesn't want it. Well, he doesn't want it, but he's accepting it. And they basically milked people he for money it. on that victory. Yeah, at a a victory tour last year. I mean, they were selling anything. You know, they would sell a urinal to somebody if he was going to pay it, as long as it had Derek Jeter on it, you know, the number two and the NY. I mean, that's just the way way it is. I mean, Derek Jeter was a very good player. Uh, He he brought a lot of intangibles to the game. Uh, As far as the leadership value, I, I don't, you know, I think that was a tad overrated. I agree with you there because I think Derek Jeter was about Derek Jeter and about himself. I don't think he was the, you know, like when you you read the old stories, you talk to Bobby Richardson and some of the old Yankee guys, you know, the days of Mantle and Berra and Richardson and they used to hang it. Those guys were friends. Jeter to me was kind of a guy that came, he did his thing and he went went on his own way. You you know what I'm saying? Yeah, he didn't get in any trouble, but he wasn't, you know, a, a teammate, teammate where he hung out with the guys and did stuff off the field with them. And I think that that leadership narrative, you know, is a little bit more of a legend than an, than an actual fact, if you know what I'm saying. All right. We got some other things, a couple of quick more baseball things, but let's take a break. It's a, a little after 11. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs, Mike Silva, Joe, uh, not Joe Bona, another Freudian slip there, uh, Mojo. And Jim, well, you know, Mojo now that Joe Warren. called, I mean, you know, you've got Joe on the brain. I mean, Joe, you, you yep. fired Joe up all the way across the the uh, the ocean. Just the think about that. You have accomplished the impossible. Joe Bono, man, doing Isles blog while he's in Europe. <laughs> I mean, right. it, it, you know. 
In a bankrupt, I, I'm telling you, Joe is secretly there investing. Joe is investing. He's going to buy low and come high, and one day we're going to see Joe Bono as one of the entrepreneurs rebuilding. I'm telling you, that's why he's there, Mike. He's on a secret mission to get that bankrupt country back, because we know how Joe likes to you know, look for good deals and, and, and good bargains, and, and Joe's over there trying to you know, make, make, make his mark while he enjoys his vacation with his wife. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs, Mike Silva, Jim Mojo Morrison, subbing in for the vacationing Joe Bono. The number is 646-716-8187, and uh, you can listen to us live or replay at weekendwatchdogs.com. We'll be right back. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Every Saturday between 10 and noon, Mike Silva and Joe Bono bring you the Weekend Sports with a New York slant. A one-stop shop of quality commentary, hard-hitting debates, intelligent guests, and entertaining pop culture references. Go to WeekendWatchdogs.com for an archive of the latest shows, iTunes subscription, and to contact the show. It's Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Don't miss it. Mike Silva, Jim Mojo Morrison in for the vacation, Joe Bono. Jim is actually, well, Joe's in Greece. Jim's actually at BB&C Ballpark moving around. You may hear some pregame festivities going on at some point. Can you you hear me now, Mike? You're fine. Can you still hear me pretty good? Okay. Yeah, Yeah, I'm at a a different location now. I am uh, actually... Where's I'm on Mojo? the side of I, – I moved to uh, across the suite, and I'm now uh, in a concourse area uh, uh, looking at Bank of America Stadium and uh, a, a group of protesters <laughs> forming on the other side of the street, and uh, I'm sitting here well, doing the show with that, you. Mojo. I, don't know if, I don't know if everybody knows. There was some, uh, uh, some protest down there. Yeah, you know, Mike, it, it, it's really sad, and I, I don't want to get political because I wasn't there either in a courtroom or – or the incident, but it was another case of a police officer shooting uh, a, a young man, uh, supposedly uh, unarmed. Well, he was unarmed because they, you know, they established that in a court of law. And they had a mistrial in Charlotte, uh, eight to four. They didn't tell you whether it was guilty or innocent. The judge declared a, a mistrial, and of course, you know that just is you know the rite of passage for protesters. So yesterday, the courthouse, which is right across from the the ballpark here, it, they they announced it at like four or five o'clock in the afternoon as we got to the ballpark you started seeing it then they had to shut the street down and then by the end of the night you had people trying to jump the fence to the ballpark and then converge and at the end of the game they had to shut the ballpark down and lock it up and uh, not allow anybody we had 10,000 people in the stadium we were supposed to shoot fireworks and they didn't allow anybody uh, to leave, and then finally they secured it enough that they let one exit, and they let the people out, and then we, the you know, employees, had to stay for a while, and uh, they tried to get us to our uh, cars safely, and, you know, thank God the Charlotte Police Department did a great job, and, you know, there's a lot of emotions involved when you have cases like this, and, you know, unless you walk in the shoes of the people that are involved with it, it's hard to really pass judgment on it. Uh, you just don't want violence and everything to ensue afterwards. You know, you have a right to protest any 
anything in this country. It's when you get violent and you cause upheaval. And you, you saw a little bit of that starting to develop, but they kind of squashed it. So that was a little scary uh, being a part of it. It didn't make the national news. You know why? Because there wasn't any burnings of, of buildings and cars. Uh, that it got to like in Baltimore and Ferguson and other other places, but it, it was a pretty big story here uh, in Charlotte for you know pretty much the entire uh, Friday night, which kind of dampered uh, fireworks night here, and it also put a damper on uh, the opening of high school football, which is pretty popular down here in the South as well. Uh, so it, it, it was very uh, big big story uh, down here in you know, uh, you don't Charlotte. think they were you weren't concerned they were protesting you coming on the air with me because of my comments on Geno Smith or my take on Terry Collins or my take on the Yankees. Cause it, you know, these days the protests could be very well misconstrued because it seems like, like well, I said or, earlier, or, or Mike, like you seem to be firing up a lot of people, you know, Mike, that's, I'll tell you, that's what a good uh, radio host does though. He, he has opinion, you know, good or bad as far as people are concerned, but it's strong and you, you get people to react to it. And, and you know, that's kind of what you do. And, and I do a little bit of it as well. I, I, I don't go on the, on Twitter like you do as much as far as uh, building uh, people up to the point of, uh, all right, I'm going to go after them. I need to get out there a little bit more uh, on Twitter, but yeah, it, it, it's an emotional thing and uh, people get, you know, very caught up in this kind of stuff, but it's hard to, when you're, you know, you're not a police officer, you know, there's a lot of bad apples in every, in every batch, Mike, wh- whether it's in radio and police in law enforcement, politics, there are bad people that ruin it for the good people. And uh, we do have a problem as far as uh, the relations uh, with the police and the, and the public, and they need to kind of figure this out and have a conversation and try to, uh, uh, you know, because we're basically back in the 1960s again, where everything is causing civil unrest, you know, any type of incident and, you know, people are taken to the streets and it, it's just not a good thing. We thought as a society, we've moved past it and we've moved on. And uh, obviously, we have because the, the problems uh, still exist and uh, and you see it every day with all of these uh, various incidents throughout the country. I mean, you saw it back in New York in Staten Island in, in that uh, incident, I believe it was uh, a few months ago, and they had that for what about a week where there was all that unrest uh, going on up there. Well, now here I'm going to cause you more unrest in the uh, baseball version. Wins above replacement, baseball reference, top 10 pitchers in Yankees history. And when you look at the list, it's so clear that the Yankees are more known for offense than pitching, although there's some really good names on this list. Yes. And I'm surprised about number one because you always hear from the advanced metric crowd that relievers are fungible, they're replaceable. But Mariana Rivera, number one, Whitey Ford, number two, Andy Pettit, number three, Ron Guidry, number four, Red Ruffing, number five, Lefty Gomez, number six, Bob Shockey, number seven, Mel Stottlemyre, number eight, Wait Hoyt, number nine. That's going way back to the 20s. And number 10, Mike Mucina. That is based on wins above replacement, which takes in all the different factors. It's not just doing strikeouts or saves or, or wins. Those are the top 10 pitchers in Yankee history. You know, Mike, like, like Bob said, uh, Bob Klappish, who was on in the first hour with us, I can live with Andy Pettit a little bit uh, because of the fact that Andy Pettit was a money pitcher. But Andy Pettit lost as many big games or, or, or a, a bunch of big games as much sure. as he won. Everybody, everybody looks at Andy Pettit as, well, you know, big game. It's like James Shields, the narrative of him, big game James. I think he's had right. one big win. And then the rest of the time you see him, he always seems to fall short or be taken out in the sixth inning and, you know, either behind or tied 
side or, or, or whatnot. Uh, Pettit was a good pitcher. I remember that one nothing game against the Braves uh, when O'Neill made that what, great Mojo, If you really want to argue, the, the, and you're exactly right. I mean, Pettit got blown out in the first game of the World Series. But yeah. that game five was so important on a couple of fronts. The Braves go up 3-2. I don't think they lose that series. I really, I really don't. I agree with you. I, I agree with that 100. percent That was I the biggest. The that kind of turned. That, that kind of made that dynasty what it is. Winning that game the way he right. wanted against. Because Smoke. I think if, you know, there's two things: the Glaritz home run and the Pettit subsequent game, and maybe even the O'Neill catch to end the game because that that would have tied the game. If the Yankees lose that World Series, I don't know how George Steinbrenner would react. Because you're really well, think about this, with Mike. the insanity of George at that point. Right. You think might about never have the, the dynasty. You might never Exactly, have because Joe would not have let – think about – I always say the two things. Jeffrey Mayer, uh, if they have replay, that, that call is overturned. Orioles maybe win that um, series. I don't know if that would be a home run, but Mojo, I don't know if he would catch that ball. See, you, Tony Tarasco was not close to catching that ball. It could have went off the wall. Okay, but let's but right. So let's let's fast forward though to the Pettit game. The following year, they lose to the the Indians when Mari the, the the one of the two times that Mariano failed to come through in the postseason. The Alomar home run against Cleveland and then the Gonzalez in, in the World Series. So now, if Torrey loses that World Series and then loses in the ALCS to the Indians, you know he doesn't come back for '98. Somebody else is there in '98. And who knows what they do? Maybe they trade Rivera. Uh, you know, maybe he gets crazy and trades Jeter. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of what ifs, but you are exactly right. And that to me is so where Andy Pettit was worth his money. Andy Pettit is a very solid top of the rotation pitcher. And let me tell you how close, if you remember correctly, and if anybody's listening, go to Google the archive, see if you can find it. Mid season 1999, July, August, Andy Pettit did not have a good 1999. There was a, a a lot of talk. He was very close to being traded to the Philadelphia Phillies that year. I don't know who well, the here's Yankees my, here's, here's my problem. Very I can't like I said. I, can, I like Clappish. Said Bob Clappish. I can live with Andy Pettit. Posada wasn't even the starter in '96. They talk about this core four and these four titles, Mike, or these five titles. He wasn't the starter. Girardi got the triple in Game Six that ignited that win. Girardi was the starting catcher in '96. Posada wasn't even on the postseason roster in '96, but yet he gets credit for getting that that World Championship. He was he was a, a bit player then. He he took over on the '98 team, and you know he wasn't that good a defensive catcher. He had some good offensive productivity. Look at his postseason numbers, Mike. They weren't that stellar. I, I just don't put – when you have Bill Dickey and you have Yogi Berra and you have Thurman Munson, Posada doesn't belong with those guys. I'm sorry. Here he it was is, not I have, fire. I have it right now. So at the July 31st trading deadline – and this was an article in the Daily News from 2009. At the July 31st trading deadline in 1999, Pettit was a two-time world champion in a rut, and Steinbrenner noticed it. They were going to explore a trade to the Phillies for prospects that, according, and, and this was the, Adam Eaton was the center of the deal, and then Reggie Taylor. Now, if you remember, Mojo, Adam Eaton was uh, somewhat mediocre. He was a big prospect for the Phillies, but somewhat mediocre starter. Uh, Reggie Taylor, yeah. I don't know much about, but Adam Eaton was the, was the centerpiece of the deal, which is interesting because the Yankees are in the midst of trying to repeat as champions, and here you go, you're trading Pettit, a veteran pitcher, and not getting anybody uh, uh, that could help you immediately back. So I find right. that interesting. But think about that. So even then, 
You trade Pettit in 1999, you may never be having this day. He goes to the Phillies, he moves on, and maybe he becomes a Philly, and Andy Pettit becomes a footnote in Yankees history, not, you know, not someone who's getting the number retired. It's just interesting how close were so many events. And I don't well, really have a problem with them retiring the number. I still wonder if he's a Hall of Famer, but he's a darn a lot closer than, uh, you know, look, once you let, uh, uh, you know, Catfish Hunter and guys like that into the Hall of Fame, you have to, you know, look at precedent and you have to say, you know, Andy Pettit's not a crazy Hall of Famer. Yeah, well, Catfish Hunter was a money pitcher uh, with the with the A's. He won a bunch of Cy Young awards. Yeah, but, he, I but, mean, Catfish... but the, the body of work is insane. you got to look at the body of work as well. Not just the three yeah. period. I mean, when I look at Catfish Hunter and I look at Andy Pettit, I thought of Catfish Hunter as a Hall of Famer. I watched him in his heyday with Oakland. I watched him, you know, in the beginning with the Yankees. Yeah, he started to get some arm problems and some issues with, in New York. He didn't really make his mark. See, that's the other thing with the Yankees. They get guys. You know, Reggie was only here for five years. They put him in, obviously, off of the you know the World Series uh, triumphs in '77 and '78. You look at some of the guys that were here; they were not here for that long of a period of time. It's like I look at you know people argue with Gary Carter and the Mets. Gary Carter was only with the Mets five years, and his productivity after the '85 season really wasn't that good. He had an okay '86, and then he declined in the in the last part of his contract with the New York sure. Mets. '89, he was he was not good. Yeah, and 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 that's why and people want to you know immortalize him, but but yes, it was so that's why you know I remember watching him struggle with those legs in '88 in the postseason to to barely get the ball out of the infield against the Dodgers in that in that championship series. So Gary Carter was on the on the tail end with with the Mets. He was a great acquisition. He was the final piece to the puzzle. All the pitchers will tell you that Gary Carter's. Value was in his uh, defense with those teams, Gooden and Fernandez and Darling and those guys. And, you know, Wally Backman loved Gary Carter. They were t- tight as heck. And I spent some time with Wally when he came through here, when he was with Buffalo, and I had a chance to speak to him and, you know, have spoken to him on various occasions. That's his boy. And uh, Gary Carter, you know, is a Hall of Famer, but I had no problem with them putting him in as a Montreal Expo because that's where his, you know, fame and his, uh, his Hall of Fame career really was established. And could you imagine us doing a talk show in the winter of 84 to 85? Certainly you bought Gary Carter with a bundle of prospects, Floyd Yeomans, Mike Fitzgerald, Hubie Brooks, who was a shortstop, who was, who was young and promising and had a decent career but never really panned out. And you really bought Gary Carter for the final couple of years of his late prime. And you won a championship, or you were hoping to win. You could have very easily won in 85 as well. But I'm sure... There would have been individuals in the way that the modern fan and analytics crowd and front office type would think and say, you gave up the future and too much value for Gary Carter, who was, in 1984, entering his age 30 season with bad knees. And once catchers hit 30, there's a steep decline. You got age 31, 32 season. Um, and, and really, by the age 33, he was okay in 87. But he was pretty much on the way out at that point and becoming a, uh, uh, you know, a guy who pop a home run here or there, but not much power, not, not an impact bat anymore. I'm sure we would have had those who would have been angry about the, the Mets trading Mike Fitzgerald and Floyd Yeomans and Hubie Brooks and Winningham for Gary Carter. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the the asset people and the future people and, you know, those type of guys would be very angry. Talk radio would have been lit up uh, with the fact that they gave up so much to get Gary Carter. But it's very hard to argue. Gary Carter was, 
the final piece to the puzzle, Frank Cashin, the late Frank Cashin, tremendous general manager, built those Orioles teams in the uh, late 60s and 70s and just knew his stuff and then came to the Mets and turned the franchise around uh, after uh, the late Nelson Doubleday and Fred Wilpon uh, purchased the team from the Payson family, the DeLaray family. And uh, Frank Cashin was instrumental in turning around that franchise. You know, you remember when he, he tried to get Earl Weaver, the Hall of Fame manager, the late Earl Weaver, to come and then wound up having to settle for Davey Johnson uh, after uh, Frank Howard and George Bamberger didn't work out. And it was a situation where Davey was the perfect fit for that team. He came up with those guys. That's why I would love to see Wally Backman come up with these guys. He's had these guys through the farm system. They love to play for him. Frank Viola, former major leaguer, knows what it takes to be a successful major league pitcher and a pitching coach. I think that would be a perfect addition to really take this team forward for the next four or five years, despite the job that Terry has done. Now, Last thing, I want to take a break and transition to football because I think you have a lot of interesting things to talk about with both the Jets and the Giants, as well as your experience getting behind the curtain there at uh, the Saints-Patriots practice earlier in the week. Here you know, I'm going to get a lot of Jets fans upset with me with that experience, but go ahead, take the I'm transition. I'm sure you <laughs> will. I'm sure you will. Here are the names of relievers that have passed through waivers that the Mets could, in theory, acquire. Addison Reed, Fernando Rodney, John Axford, Edward Mujica, David Ardsma. Just to give you the thesis, all of these guys have the potential to strike out a lot of batters. All of them have command and control issues. All of them are kerosene on a fire. Ardsma was here a couple of years ago. He might be the best of the duo. Wouldn't give a lot up for any of them because they're free. You know, there's nothing there. Most of them are either second tier or, like in the case of Rodney, going to be a free agent. That's what you got. Now, somebody out there, actually, uh, Paul Lebowitz who uh, criticizes me a lot on Twitter, sent something out on, on Twitter, if you want to follow us, at that Mike Silver Media, at Jim Mojo Morrison, about maybe how K-Rod, if Milwaukee was willing to do something, would be perfect. Now, I think the, and I know the GM is stepping down, but I think the relations between Milwaukee and the Mets are a little strained at this point. So I'm not yeah, even sure after that's that whole like, Gomez. And I don't uh, think K-Rod Astra. would make it through, I don't think K-Rod would make it through Wave. So, you know, Axford might be worth worth you know a flyer if you can get him for basically nothing, Mike. But you know, anything you get, you're basically rolling the dice and taking a chance that you're going to get that Yankee bump in flushing with one of these guys. I still, you know, Joe brought up about Syndergaard or Max. I talked to a lot of scouts. Syndergaard, I don't think it would be a relief answer because if you listen to them talking, uh, I, I don't know what, you know, obviously you listen to the Mets, SMY. I had to listen to the Orioles feed and I had to listen to the MLB network feed during the Orioles games because Baltimore is considered part of the Charlotte market. So I couldn't listen to uh, the SNY feed when they play like the Nats and the Orioles. And one of the things that they were talking about is his, his splits between city fields and, and being on the road. And part of the problem they were saying is that he has this routine and this regimen of how he prepares to pitch to start the game. And when he's at city field, he can do a certain thing, but when he's on the road, he can't because he doesn't go straight from the bullpen to the mound. He's got to go sit in the dugout. And then if the team happens to get some offense in the first inning, he has a problem getting back out there and getting it kicked into a higher gear. So you may have a problem with him coming out of the bullpen if he needs a certain amount of time to get this routine down where Matt's, you know, Bob, you know, Clapper said he hasn't seen him. 
I've talked to Scott. They have loved this kid. I mean, I, you know, I'm not sure, you know, the Mets, you know, Howie Rose says there's no way they're going to do this because of the, the injury situation. But this kid would be the best person to put in there. He's, I know he's got the poise. The scouts love him that I've talked to. Uh, he's a lefty out of the arm. He compliments the other two from the right. Get him ready. Get him familiar with the role. And then next year you put him back in the rotation when Cologne is out of here. Because I don't think there's anybody in that rotation that would be a suitable bullpen guy that could come in in the seventh inning, the eighth inning, to face a lefty and do it. I think the kid has what it takes, and I think he would relish the role to be in a pennant race and get big outs and big spots. I I just think that that's the way to go. That, yeah, I, I mean, I the Mets I don't, don't think out of the box like you and I, but that's the answer. That's your best available right. arm, and he's on your staff, and he's on your roster. That's, that's the, the guy I would get him ready. For the postseason, because you need four starters in the postseason, Harvey, DeGrom, Syndergaard, and I think Nice. I don't think Nice is except for the bullpen. You put Matt in the, uh, in the, for the bullpen. You put Syndergaard right. in the rotation. Matt is your fifth guy. He goes to the bullpen, and Cologne could go and watch the uh, – the, the the game from the bench or maybe he goes home right. since uh, he's a free I don't know but anyway let's take let's take a break we're entering our back half we're entering our stretch drive here you're listening to the weekend watchdogs Mike Silva and Jim Mojo Morrison subbing in for the vacation Joe Bono vacationing Joe Bono and uh, we'll be right back the most magnificent Mojo marvelous Mojo magical Mojo Memorable minute of your morning. Oh, God, please. You guys don't have enough minutes on this show. The Mojo Minute. I mean, we're not yelling fire in a theater here. With Jim Mojo Morrison. Who the heck knows? This isn't an exact science. Only on the Weekend Watchdogs. Saturday, 10 to noon on Blog Talk Radio. Mojo! It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Mike Silva and Jim Mojo Morrison subbing in for the vacation. Joe Bono, Weekend Watchdogs. Go to the show live on replay at weekendwatchdogs.com. Go to iTunes, go to our Facebook page. And if you want to give us a call, the number is 646-716-8187. Before we get to the football, one last call here. I'm sure he wants to talk baseball. Maybe not. Let's not assume it. Our buddy Drew from Bayshore Mojo is calling in. Drew, you're on with Mike and Mojo. How you doing? Good morning, guys. I'm doing great. You know, you're right. I was originally going to call in for the football section, but uh, I heard uh, Jim's comment about Matt. And for the second week in a row, I agree. I couldn't agree more with him. Um, Matt is the guy. And, you know, everybody brings up the Cardinals as the example, but that's not even the example. The best example is Chris Sale with the Chicago White Sox, who could you argue is as good as Harvey, if not better, uh, over a total body of work. He came out of the bullpen for their World yep, Series run, year. I believe. Yep. I mean, it's, yep. it's the answer. I mean, you just have to get him ready and, and get him in the right mindset and just let him know next year is when you're going to be starting, not this yeah, this year. This is not going to be like Job Chamberlain. This is not exactly. going to be like, we're not, exactly. to, we're not asking anybody to make him a reliever. And people will get exactly. crazy because of it. But you put him in for this year, you limit his innings. You could use him as a starter in September, but if it's a second, yeah. I, look, I think they're going to really, I, I don't know if I agree with Clappish in the sense where the, the, the Nationals are done. They may be. They've shown they no indication that they're going to have any. You still, look, they did it a couple of years ago. Go back to the 2013 Nationals. They made a nice run the last few weeks of the season. So, 
And, um, and I also, Mike, Mike, I just want to correct you on a statement you made after I hung up yesterday, uh, last week. It's not me uh, or Mets fans are being happy about just making it. The point was just get there and everything, you know, from there on is wavy because you I, just don't know what this pitching uh, I, I agree, Drew. I mean, it's one of those deals. You know, I, I, I celebrate my birthday on August 1st, and a friend and I, who's a, we're both lifelong Mets fans, and we always say our success gauge with the Mets is to have meaningful <laughs> birthday on my uh, meaningful baseball on my birthday, and then anything after that is gravy. And the fact that we have it for the first time since 2008, and we have this now unforeseen, you know, uh, Miss great fortune of being five games up on August 20, 20th here, or whatever the date is, 22nd. and 22nd, it, it, it's like unbelievable. So enjoy it, go for exactly. it, take, take your best shot, and whatever happens next year and in 2017, it will happen. But we've right. got the pieces in place to get it done. The Cespedes exactly. thing, I think it put us over the top. Uribe has won two championship rings. That's the guy to look to. Integrate right back in. Hopefully, you know, they, they've got the right approach with him. He's going to get himself slowly acclimated back into the lineup. So hopefully if they get to October, he's ready to, to rock and roll for them. I, I think that everything is there. And this is one of those 1973s where they're coming out of nowhere down the stretch. And I think that, you know, once they get there, you know, no one thought they would beat the big red machine in 1973. I always tease Doug Flynn when I talk to him about it. And uh, he said, well, that's because I wasn't on the team yet. That's why they lost. And it's there. I mean, with the pitching, when you had Seaver, Matlack, and Kuzman in a short series, you've got Harvey, DeGrom, and Syndergaard in a short series. You can beat anybody, uh, Drew, once you get there. So I agree with you on that regard. Once they get there, anything can happen. And thanks for the call, Drew. Real quick, I know we, we can keep pushing the football off, but 2013 Nationals, 13 and 14 in April, 15 and 13 in May, 13 and 13 in June, 11 and 16 in July, 16 and 11 in August, 18 and 9 in September. They didn't kick it in gear until August. Uh, you know, if the, the Nationals go on an 18 and 9 run, you know, I could see the Mets being, you know, 14 and 13, 15 and 12. You know, it's going to tighten the race up a little bit if they don't open it up. So, and the Nationals won seven in a row in September, and then that 18 and 9 September. Uh, they kind of collapsed at the last point. They lost like four out of the last six. To you know St. what Lewis I like too, Mike? The, the karma of being 0-13 versus the Pirates and the Cubs. Because if you wind up playing one of those teams in, in the postseason, the, the narrative of that will be brought out over and over again. And you know me, I always look at it through a analytical side, and I look at it from the uh, Vegas side. Vegas will make those teams favorites against, and you know how the dogs do in the postseason in baseball over the years the Mets would be an underdog against those teams and I would just love to watch them you know come back and bite these teams remember it would be like 88 all over when the Dodgers had uh, beaten or lost to the Mets I should say like 11 out of 12 times and then they came and they bit the Mets in in the NLCS so that's kind of what you're looking forward to uh, if the Mets get that opportunity but you have to first get there there's six weeks left they need to navigate the waters of the National League East and get themselves uh, to the postseason uh, before they worry about navigating a roster for the postseason. All right, let's transition to football here. Mojo, before we get into the Jets and the Giants, and look, I think somebody, it was actually Joe Benigno, who doesn't say many intelligent things on WFAN, but I think said something very erudite yesterday. Preseason football is like non-alcoholic beer. Yes, it's like drinking in your duels. I always say that. It it doesn't do anything for you. 
Right. I mean, if you're going to have a non-alcoholic beer, you're better off having an Arnold Palmer. You're better off having a soda. I mean, soda's not healthy for you, but if you want to have a vice of a drink, have a bottle of water. It's just if you're, it's just if it's about having a non-alcoholic beer, then just quench your thirst with something that's going to bring you more value, whether it's from a health point of view or from uh, an enjoyment like soda. With that said, there's a lot to talk about with the Jets and the Giants. Now, you had an opportunity to go down to West Virginia and have a chance to uh, look at some of how the uh, Saints and Patriots run their practice and their meetings. Uh, you, were, you, know, you had a chance to meet Randy Moss, former uh, uh, NFL uh, you know, standout. Yeah, I mean, future, future Hall of Famer. I mean, Mike, look at his numbers. Future Randy Hall Moss is the first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, very, if you look very at the guys that are in there. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, went into the witness protection program when he went to the Raiders, and then you know came back out when he when he met Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and the Patriots. So, give those listening, give a little ideas, talk about your experience, and I think there's a lot of little nuggets that you can share uh, that it will give some context to why you felt it was such a positive day. Well, getting to sit in on an NFL team meeting was just an absolute honor and, you know, a privilege. I mean, media people don't usually get those opportunities. Uh, but meeting Bill Belichick and uh, spending the time with Randy, the perception of there's media Bill Belichick and then there's reality Bill Belichick. Guy's very personable, uh, very thorough, watching him uh, do what he did and how he runs his team. And, and, and in the same thing with Randy, uh, very smart, very knowledgeable about the passing game. He's uh, involved with, uh, you know, working with college athletes and, and youth athletes as far as he's running uh, these academies now uh, uh, throughout the uh, North Carolina area. And he's trying to expand it nationwide, uh, working with various athletes. But you watch the way the Patriots just do business. And the, the thoroughness of the details and the little things that they do, I mean, from just worrying about center quarterback exchange, Mike, that was like the point of emphasis, you know, and, and little minute things in special teams that you were listening to them stress in the meetings. I mean, I'm not sure. I've never had the privilege of sitting in on the Jets or Giants. But, I mean, it was more like Tom Coughlin-like. Like, you, you, you know, like if you're, if you're on time, you're late type of uh, mentality. But the, the little details right. that I got to watch in the minutia. oriented stuff. I think advanced stats yes. are good, but you have, to use, you have to put advanced stats or any stat into a context where that illuminates a process, which is what I try to do with the strikeout rate and some of the uh, FIP and some of the advanced stats that factor in missed bats with pitchers in baseball. But still, there are a lot of things that go into that mechanics of a pitcher, uh, d- defensive positioning that you can't measure through the stats. So that's exactly what it sounds like you're saying from a football point of view that you got Yes, and you watch Belichick, and, and I, I, I was told some stories about a couple of players, you know, things like a few years back, uh, Belichick and stressing certain things with a certain player during the World Series. I mean, I'm sorry, during the, uh, this, it was one of their Super Bowl years when they lost, and that player just kind of blew it off, blew it off, blew it off, and then come Super Bowl Sunday, the thing that Belichick had been on him for, he wound up making that mistake that wound up you know, being part of the, the, uh, the equation. And I believe that to get player the Giants. played for the Patriots after that, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, exactly. So, you know, and, and, and the little minutia of the route tree in the NFL and how certain guys don't do it and quarterback reads, it was just, it was just very uh, mind-boggling, uh, the, the details that you see them do, and, and it was just very enlightening to watch. You know, and then with that being said, to transition back to our New York team, 
I like what I saw from Todd, uh, Todd Bowles last night with the fact that, you know what, the Jets won. They got a preseason win. First game now, the, the prior head coach, who you know I get taken shots at, the people think I don't like him for a reason, but I was always upset with his attention to detail, his lack of attention to the process. He would have been happy with that 30-22 to 22 win last night. Well, Bowles right off the bat, we had too many penalties. Last week, we're not tackling well. Like, he's looking at the big picture. He's looking at the sustainability of what this team needs to do to be successful. I mean, when you commit 17 penalties in an NFL game, and I think a lot of that is the carryover of the players that, you know, that that have been left to him. Well, I think what he's going to try to do is he's going to try to knock that out and he's going to correct those problems. And I like what I see. I like the direction that they're going uh, towards as far as the attention to detail. And, and, you know, like Brian Costello was with us last week and he basically said the same thing. Like if they make a mistake in practice, the whistle gets blown. They're running sprints. They're running, you know, uh, back and forth, side to side. Bowles has instituted that with the Jets. Rex Ryan, if you listen to Brian Costello, and I was there, and he, and he said, never saw that, maybe but one time when they did that because they, they had a fight, Rex punished them. But yeah, he doesn't pay attention to those. Like yes. You know, and these are the things that everybody, you know, they love Rex, they love Rex, they love Rex, but it's those attentions to details, you know, the second-half adjustments, the, the knowing the opponent's, tendencies, having your players know the tendencies, the fact that your quarterback can't get to a meeting on time in the West, uh, on the West Coast. These are the little details that on Sunday will win and lose football games in the National because there's a fine line between 8-8, eight and 7-9, eight, and, and, and and 10 and 6 and 11 and 5. And those are the details. And that was the point of emphasis. And I see this with this new coach. I mean, I don't know if he's going to do it right away, but I, I like the direction and the uh, way he's attempting to go, and we'll see how he does it under fire once game Sunday start in a couple of weeks. But he's, he's, he's a very uh, good start with what he's trying to implement with the New York Jets. I mean, you look at yesterday's game, Mike, you've got to be a little bit concerned with the way the first team performed defensively. You've got to be a little bit concerned with the way that is going on. Uh, you know, Matt Ryan moved up and down the field with them and, uh, you know, and, and carved that defense up. But it's preseason you got to give them the whole summer to put the whole process in and see how they answer the bell against Cleveland in week one. I was very happy and very uh, impressed with the number one draft pick, Leonard Williams. If you remember, I said when you had me on uh, analyzing the draft back in April that they got the best player regardless of position in that draft, and a lot of people took me to task on that uh, evaluation. That kid is going to be something special. He will be starting at some point this year, if not on opening day, uh, with Sheldon Richardson being out. That kid is, is going to be a player uh, at some point uh, for the New York Jets. It may not be immediately, but he's going to to be a, uh, a pretty good player. And, and I like uh, the poise that Bryce Petty showed down uh, you know, when, when he got a chance. He improved from one week to the other. Ryan Fitzpatrick will be the starter. Petty's going to uh, be brought along, and, and, let, and let's see what happens. I mean, the Jets are who they are right now. You've got to hope that Fitzpatrick is going to be the guy that you know, just keeps the thing moving along without any bumps in the road and hope that Petty develops and uh, they have a quarterback in the future. But I like the way the Jets are moving. I like, you know, if they get rid of some of these undisciplined um, things that are going on with the poor tackling and the penalties, and think about where that started, and that has been an issue, and I've, I've said this to you both on and off the year, with the Jets over over the years, they never tackled under Rex well, and they and they were too undisciplined under Rex. They were always leading the league in penalties with him as the head coach. 
when you look at the Giants, Mojo, I was thinking of an analogy because we said earlier, and I know Joe's concerned, and how can you not be concerned? I mean, but the Giants, every preseason, every uh, going into every season, you feel like, oh my God, is this team ever going to win a game? And I mean, they even heard Mike Francesa on WFAN say he thinks they're going to have a losing season. But if you remember when Larry Brown coached the team in the NBA um, earlier years, especially the Pacers, he would always focus on, again, you go back to process-oriented things. It was less about the record. It was less about getting off. You know, you you want to win, but it was about playing a certain style. And if it meant taking a step back to take a step forward, you know, November and December didn't matter to the Pacers. It was about being there in, in May and being a competitive team in May and June. I almost feel like the Giants are in the same thing because you listen to Coughlin talk, it's about work and getting the work in. So, you know, you may have guys on the offensive line right now that you don't know who they are, including their first round, including their uh, their pick. Um, but it's but it's possible that through work, uh, you know, can Eric Flowers improve? We'll see. Justin Pugh seems to be trying to take a vocal leadership role. Who knows what, what Will Beatty will get back and Jeff Schwartz will get back. The offensive line seems to be the, the end-all, be-all to whether or not this offense can be successful enough to overcome defensive shortcomings. I, again, I said this last week, and I think this will be just a theme throughout the August and, and until we start the season. I don't know what the Giants are going to be until that bell rings, and maybe not for a couple of weeks. And their schedule is not terribly hard where – yeah, week one is a is a is an awful uh, way to start in Dallas, but you got the Falcons week two. Uh, you know, it's not the end of the world uh, if you don't play well in August. No, Mike, I I said that to you uh, last week. I'm not worried about them. Let's see where they you know come out and how things go the first month of the season before you start to get panicked about them. You know, last year I made the comment, I know people are looking for more definitive analysis, but sometimes you have to take a wait-and-see approach with certain teams, and the Giants are one of those teams based on the problems they have in the secondary and the uh, problems they have on the offensive line right now. Both of those things are a work in progress. But Tom Coughlin is a very good coach. He's won two Super Bowls for a reason. I mean, he knows what he's, what he's doing, and they've got a plan in place there, and they, they pay attention to detail. So Dallas, we mentioned they're the favorite. They're the clear-cut team in that division based on last year. Coming back this year, everybody's you know, putting their chips on the Dallas Cowboys. Well, the Giants always play well down in uh, Dallas, Mike. And that could be a game, you know, Eli comes down, everybody's looking. They always play well in Dallas. Even last year, they gave them a game uh, for a, you know, a little bit before Dallas uh, took over. Then you got the Falcons. They don't play well on the road. You've got Washington, who doesn't play well on the road, and, and, and they're kind of in a rebuilding mode. They go and play Rex up in Buffalo. Now, that's going to be a, a, a game where your offensive line will be tested for the first time. When Rex has those guys defensively, he's got those 100 blitzes that he brings to the game. That's where that offensive line will get their test in week four. But you'll hope that after weeks one, two, and three, they'll have some solidified it, that they'll be able to handle Rex and that defense up there. And Rex's offense is going to be nothing to uh, write home about with Castle as his quarterback. So that's going to be one of those slugfest 16-14 type of games. And then you got the 49ers in a total rebuild mode in week five at home. So realistically, you could be three and, and, and two, four and one based on your schedule of your first five weeks if everything meshes the way you plan on doing right. it. So that's why I wouldn't worry 
about it until I see them play the week one in Dallas and week two against the Falcons. Then if you have problems after week two, then you start to stress in, in week three. But right now, after one preseason game, with, with the lack of, of time they get, they only get two and a half hours a day, Mike. That's why they're doing these joint practices with these different teams when they travel and they get to go practice against each other a couple of days a week. The collective bargaining agreement does not allow them to do two a days anymore, does not allow them to go more than two and a half hours on a particular day. It's very difficult when you're young or you're trying to do things in uh, you know on the fly. It's going to be a process, and that's where the Giants are out with those two positions. The skill positions are fine. It's the secondary in the line, but I think just give them time and wait and see what they have come opening day. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs. We've got our final segment coming up. Bojo moving his way around BB&T Ballpark as the game is about to start in just a little bit. Uh, final segment. Uh, keep listening to us live or replay at WeekendWatchdogs.com. Send us a tweet at Mike Silva Media at Jim Mojo Morrison, and, uh, of course, you could always get us on the Facebook page or on iTunes. We will uh, continue, and we'll be right back. Legendary Boston Globe columnist Bob Ryan joined the Weekend Watchdogs. Is the game worse? Is it different? You know, what is your opinion on where the NBA has gone? It's still the best basketball in the world with the, with the best athletic basketball players, and the coaching is phenomenal. Uh, it, it, the defenses are sophisticated. It's hard to score in this league now. What I don't like about the game and why I don't like it as much as I once did, but I still like it, is the, uh, the, the three-point shot has completely taken over the game. It's distorted the game at every level. I, 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 would, I know it's, we're never going to get rid of it, but I, I just don't think it's been a good thing for the game, uh, and it's caused the style of play, uh, and that it's not as enjoyable as it once was. And the, the disappearance of true post people uh, is, a, is a problem. Uh, and the biggest, biggest thing is the, the lost art of the true fast break. To hear guests on the NBA and more, tune in to the Weekend Watchdogs every Saturday, 10 to noon, on Blog Talk Radio. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Mike Silva and Jim Mojo Morrison subbing in for the vacation of Joe Bono. Jim is down uh, in Charlotte at BGT Ballpark, so he's. Uh, been kind enough to spend uh, the final segment with us. He might be moving from room to room, from a suite, the press box, to maybe the promenade somewhere. Hopefully they don't kick him out and make him go sit with all the protesters uh, in, in the uh, the parking lot. And, and Mojo, uh, an interesting thing that I did not have a chance to ask you last week, and uh, Tom Coughlin was talking about it uh, to ESPN New York, is about the changes in the extra point, which essentially takes a 99% success rate kick down to 94. So it's still a very high success rate. And with the way that kickers are now, a 33-yard extra point, 33-yard field goal, unless you're in a very volatile weather situation or a complete choke artist, I don't think it's going to be something that you have to worry about. I still think you're going to really get your, your extra point. But it may change strategy as you get to certain parts of the game in the season. Um 
Coughlin doesn't think he's going to be super aggressive with the new extra point rule. Doesn't believe it'll lead to maybe more two-point conversions, at least for his team. Did you get any perspective on that in your conversations and your travels? Uh, yeah, it came up because uh, they were talking about the Patriots kicker, uh, Steven Gutowski, who got you know, a lot of money, got paid very well uh, over the offseason. Patriots kept him on. And they were actually talking about you know, how the kicker is going to have a lot of value this year. You know, to have that accurate kicker that you, know, you said 94%, well, that's 6% of the time now that the extra point's not going to go through. So you're going to see a lot of teams, you know, if they miss that extra point, the guy you know, hooks one or, or, or whatnot, uh, they're going to be now chasing a point uh, throughout the game. And you, know, you, you want to see teams not chase it and go for two, and then they lose another point. So it has been brought up. Like a lot of people feel that it won't be that big of a factor uh, early on. It's a wait and see type of a situation on how the kickers adjust to it. Um, you know, some coaches you might see become more aggressive. It's going to be interesting because it's not a guaranteed uh, point anymore. You know, what a lot of people were more concerned about is the fact that you know you have that, that play is kind of like a gimme play where they just stand there, guys just stick their arms up, and the guy kicks the ball through the upright. Now you actually got to block and, and give the guy a little bit of time to kick it through from that distance. So with all the violent plays that you have in a, in a National Football League game, you know, now you're taking the, uh, the few that they have easy out of the equation, and now everything is going to be a play where they're going to have to really go all out. So that's kind of what a lot of people were talking about. Uh, but they don't see it being too much of a factor. Uh, it's a wait-and-see type of a deal, and if it is, you know, people will address it as, as they go along. But they don't think it will be uh, early on. They think most of these guys will be able to adjust to it pretty good. What are your thoughts? Like, now you saw the Patriots up close, and obviously you saw how they work. You know Brady's going through the whole NFL thing with the flake gate, which is becoming exhausting. They're probably not going to have him for a chunk of the season, quarter of the season. Can the Patriots, I mean, in that division, you got the Dolphins, you got the Jets, you got the Patriots, you got Rex. Um, I mean, does this open it up, you think, for the Jets now? I mean, uh, do you feel, even with some of the things that concern you about the quarterback situation, and you mentioned the defense and the discipline, we still don't know. This is, you know, this is not all of a sudden going to be a snap of a finger, and things are going to turn around. Even Parcells, when he took over for Rich Kotite, it wasn't a snap of a finger. It took a good year. So you that, feel that, that probably, it up for the Jets? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the Patriots are the Patriots until further notice. Uh, they're going to be the team to beat until somebody actually goes out there and beats it. You know, contrary hate, to what Rex let people believe. I hate that because it's always a, a lazy way of looking at it. But you're right, because last year we were having the same conversation after week four, and everybody said the Patriots looked like crap after they lost and got blown out at least yeah. in Cincinnati on a Sunday night. And everyone's like, well, the Patriots, until they show me that they can't be competitive, uh, I'm going to believe in them, and there they are, they win the Super Bowl. So I can't argue with you on that as much as I hate it. You know, and Jimmy Garoppolo, as much as people like to give you the narrative that he's just as good as Brady, uh, some of the people, you know, said – off the record type of deal, you know, or the reports out, you know, where people don't want to be, you know, quoted as saying is that, you know, he's not as been impressive as, you know, the reports out there have, have been. 
uh, you know, they do miss. I mean, when you watch Tom Brady run the seven-on-seven seven and you watch him with Gronk and the precision, I mean, Patriots are, are hurt on, on the off, uh, wide receiver. They've got five healthy wide receivers in camp right now. Because a lot of people were teasing Randy Moss about, you know, you should make a comeback, you should come and back and play. I mean, because he's in phenomenal shape. Even Carolina lost Kelvin Benjamin last week, their number one draft pick. And people are joking down here. A lot of the talk guys, you know, he should come back and play for the Panthers because they could use a wide receiver of his skill set. But when you watch Brady run the offense and then you watch Garoppolo run it, I mean, you can notice the difference. You notice the drop-off. Definitely are going to be missing Brady in week one against the Steelers because I think no matter what they settle, if they do settle, he's going to have to take at least one game, and that will be the opening one against Pittsburgh. And then whatever happens after that, uh, it's going to be one of those deals. I mean, nobody thought when they lost Brady back at, uh, what was it, 11th, uh, Mike, was the year, 10 or 11th, when Matt Castle went in there and they missed the playoffs the one time. No, I think it was earlier than that. It might have been, like, uh, before they won – before the perfect season, wasn't it? Wasn't it like 07 or something? Or 06? Oh, 06. 07 was the perfect season. Whatever yeah, the year that was when Castle – God, Castle's been a starter for eight years. God, you know, and Castle came in, and nobody thought that they were going to be effective, and he wound up winning 10 games for them. I mean, they find ways to do it just by X's and O's, and, and it's only four weeks. Then Brady comes back, and it's just, you know, as if he, got, he had gotten injured. I think, I mean, the problem is, is the Jets have to take care of their own business. They've got to show that their defense can stop people because that's their strength. Their offense doesn't turn the ball over. They don't commit 17 penalties. I mean, I wouldn't worry about the Patriots if I'm the New York Jets. I would worry about the New York Jets and worry about, you know, the Cleveland Browns in week one. And after you get through that, then I would worry about the Philadelphia Eagles and the Washington Redskins. And, you know, and that's how I would approach it. And the Miami Dolphins, so, you know, one game at a time keep your own house in order, and then worry about the Patriots when you need to worry about the Patriots and you know, midseason, see how things play out with them. But if you're the Jets, you've got to just worry about yourself. I mean, you're coming off of a year where you were the sixth pick in the draft. You had an abysmal season. You had a coach who hasn't produced a winning season in four years. I mean, eight and eight twice and then two losing campaigns. You need to come out there. Your first goal is to win nine games. Have a winning season. Then your next nine step is to get – that's is that realistic, goal. though? But is that – I mean, I know, again, we're talking about this in August, but is that realistic? I know it's it's early. I don't know. I mean, I have to see more. Like I said, we go back to the whole non-alcoholic beverage with preseason, but you got to like with some of the things with, in terms of the process in the, in the in the new regime that that's – I mean, i got to think that that's the minimum they're looking at. They're not looking at – I mean, I mean, you've got your division – You've got your you got the Browns. I mean, a lot of people are high on them this year with McNown in there. Uh, you've got your division games, and you look at the, you know the Raiders are on the schedule always at home. Always wanted McNown got... for the Jets. I always said a couple of years ago I thought McNown was the guy they could have went after. You know, you've got the Patriots, uh, and uh, to watch out. I mean, the Titans. The Jaguars, the Raiders, I mean, the Redskins, those are four games you say you've got at least a 50-50 chance of winning. You know, so there's four. And then, you know, then you've got some tough ones. Do you, do you split in your division with Buffalo and you split in your division with Miami? There's two. You, you, you beat the Browns That's you know, uh, with those other four I mentioned. There's seven. And then you win a couple. You don't. I mean, you're going to lose a couple you're, suppo- you're, you're not supposed you know, to lose. So, I mean, they got some tough ones. They got the Giants. You don't know what state the Giants are going to be in in week 13. Uh, they've got Dallas, which you know could be a very good team. Uh, the Patriots twice. 
there's nothing insurmountable. The Eagles, I think the Colts is the, the one game if I had to put my, uh, you know, my chips on the table, I'd say they're going to lose, I would say, week two on Monday night at, uh, at Indianapolis. That would be the one game I say they don't have a chance to win uh, based on just the way the Jets have been. But other than that, I think you know, all the other games are winnable for them. It all depends on how they get things, their, their affairs in order. Now, two quick things. Any chance that Fitzpatrick opens the door for Flynn to move in, and, and I know he's failed in multiple places, but get a chance to start? If, Matt if, Flynn. Uh, Matt Flynn? If you got to go to Matt Flynn as your starting quarterback, you you might be in for some trouble. I mean, Matt Flynn had one good game in Green Bay in a you know a week. Uh, got a big contract out of it, and he got, got a big contract out of it. Right, exactly. And you know, and then you look at it after that. I mean, if Matt Flynn has to be used, then you're 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 probably in a heap of trouble, Matt. Mike. I mean, you, you know, the next progression that you want if you get, move away from Fitzpatrick is Bryce Petty. But if you're a Jets fan, you got to be rooting for this guy to get the job done, to utilize the guys they brought in around him and Decker and Brandon Marshall, utilize this running uh, back situation that they have just not turn the ball over and let that defense put you in a position to win games and you just not lose them. you got to be Trent Dilfer in 2000 and come out there and, and utilize what you have and win football games and uh, basically you know, go at it like that. I mean, I think that if you got to go to Matt Flynn, then the season is in a, in a lot of trouble and you're in a desperation mode if Matt Flynn is playing quarterback for the New York Jets. And if you're a Giants fan, what are you looking at? What is Jim uh, What is Jim Mojo Morrison looking at for the non-alcoholic beverage segment of the Giants uh, preseason game? The non-alcoholic um, beverage, you know, you still got to you got to drink it. So what are you uh, What are you looking at? What's, what's I think you got to look and see. If, if, I think I, I think you need to get you know, and hopefully we're going to get Ralph Bacchiano on. I talked to him. Uh, from SMY Daily News, uh, he was going to try and come on with us today, but he had some uh, commitments. But he said he would try to jump on with us and give us a giant preview uh, in the next couple of weeks, Mike. So that's that's something I'll look forward to, and I know you will too. But the thing is, you got to just look at make progress. You know, you look at week one with Bryce Petty, you look at week two, you're happy with the transition he made. Just make progress and improve. That's what you got to look for. Be able to open up some holes, let the quarterbacks, whether it's be Eli or Nazit, make sure that they have time. See how your offensive line progresses. Just make improvements in this week. Get ready for the dress rehearsal against the Jets next week and, and just keep making progress. That's what you got to look for if you're the New York Giants tonight. Don't worry about winning or losing the game. Make progress. Get a sustainable drive with your first unit. Get your offense starting to move and matriculate a little bit. Make sure your defense uh, starts getting themselves in order. And just make progress. That's all you got to look for. I mean, make the process your, your goal and the little things that you need to work on. And, and that's what you worry about. Winning and losing uh, in week two of the uh, exhibition season is really not that important. And without Rex, the Snoopy Bowl will never be the same, Mojo. It won't. Rex got his Snoopy trophy, and now he's in Buffalo. And you notice how you know he's throwing daggers from Western New York. You know all those guys that defended Rex. Uh, it just you know makes me laugh at the way he um, you know has all of a sudden done the about face as far as his uh, love for uh, the Jets and his dream job and everything else. Now it's all Buffalo all the time, and he's taking shots at everybody down there in Florida Park, with the exception of Woody. Rex is smart, Mike, because he knows that someday down the road he may need Woody again, so he's not throwing any daggers at him. 
Not for sure. For sure on that. Hey, Mojo, I know you got to run. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, my pleasure. We'll talk today. later, my friend, and I'm looking forward to next week. And uh, it, this was fun. My, my boss with the Knights here wants to know how the hell you talk so much baseball. Nobody down here in Charlotte talks baseball for that long. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Mojo. I want to thank Mojo. Of course, I want to thank Bob Clappish. Check him out on Twitter at Bob Clapp. Check us out live on replay at weekendwatchdogs.com. Send us a tweet at Mike Silva Media at Jim Mojo Morrison. And check us out on iTunes as well as the Weekend Watchdogs Facebook page. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next week.